And I'm Liam O'Donnell. And you're listening to episode 144 of Cinepunks. Cinepunks. Oh my god, y'all. Dude, it's been it's been a time. We haven't recorded since Halloween. I know. It's been I, so long. I want to apologize. Well, so the one thing it wasn't really our fault. We recorded this bonus episode, right? And then yeah. uh our good friend Sharky got super busy, so that didn't get up. And because like I was waiting for that to get finished. I just didn't think about us recording again. And then me and Josh, I mean, Josh has got a new job that he loves, but also he's had all kinds of uh, other life stuff going on. I've had a crazy, uh, unbelievable amount of health stuff. I'll save it for my whack, but I have health things and they're all, none of them are actually a big deal, it turns out, but they were all scary at first, you know? So uh, uh, yeah. between those two things, we haven't recorded and it's a bummer, but- we are back at it, and Josh, we have a very <laughs> special episode. What what makes this episode probably one of our most special episodes? It's that we have one of our most special guests on return mission for Adriana Gober. Hi, Hello, guys. I'm so glad <laughs> yeah, you're yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. So happy Thank to talk so to you. Every single me. time, every time that we do anything that you're involved with, I always have the best time. <laughs> which is which the god's honest truth like yeah i mean adrian has been like so good to us and so generous with her with her insights and with her time and with her expertise that like i 100 percent don't believe that our show or our network would be as cool or as good as it is without you that is really sweet and that it, it means a lot and th- thank you so much we're gonna it's we're god's gonna- honest truth I, I'm just going to tell you straight up, Adriana, too, like me and Josh, we realized we hadn't recorded for a while. We're like, we're, we got to do an episode. And in true our fashion, even though we've, we've, you know, traded we back and list. forth <laughs> ideas, ideas on top of ideas, lists and lists of ideas. I said, what do you want to talk about? He's like, I don't know. And then he goes, hey, we should have Adriana on. She always has the best ideas. And I just said, that's a good, that is one of the best reasons to have a guest on because they have great ideas. So I immediately hit you up and then I tainted your good ideas with my suggestion. And that's why we have this episode. Cause I said, Adriana, well, it is the holidays. We should do something upsetting. <laughs> and so you picked two amazing movies, one of which I had never seen and didn't even know existed. So I'm very excited to have watched it uh what are we covering on this episode adriana what did what did you choose for our upsetting holiday episode um so i picked uh michael hanukkah's debut feature the seventh continent and lars von trier's breaking the waves uh-huh that is a double feature <laughs> yes, right there it really is it is a time holy moses like as soon as yeah, I was both- presented with these movies, I was like, okay, I'm with this. Adriana's awesome. I'm just going to be happy talking to her. And then I watched The Seventh Continent first and was like, 
This is not going to be a very happy conversation, is it now, Adriana? <laughs> so the main reason why I picked you to be on our show, turns out, yeah, that's not going to be quite the thing. I mean, not that we're going to be weeping. I'm just saying. You know what I mean? I was like, oh, Stark. yeah. Like, Stark. Also, considering that the other concept that we had for the, the topic of this episode was Big Trouble in Little China. Mm-hmm. Wow, mm-hmm. that is a stark contrast. It's yeah, a thing. Yeah. We're like, yeah, we should just do movies that make us happy. To be fair, what I suggest to be fair, what I did suggest was a cycle of topics that so like each topic would be different, but a cycle of kinds of topics. And I was like, yeah, we should have a we should have a category that's like challenging and upsetting things, and then a category that's like feel good nostalgia stuff. So like we just went with a different category, right? We were gonna do feel good nostalgia, <laughs> and instead we went with challenging and upsetting, both things that we like to talk about here on the show. <laughs> you know, yeah, we- man. You know, after the joy of Halloween movies and my coming around to Fright Night. Finally, at long last, and finally finding is joy right. yeah. where I thought no joy was. Let's take that joy and kill it. <laughs> Let's do that. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I'm, yeah, but- I'm, I'm actually really glad. For me, this is a perfect combination because we have a movie in uh, the seventh continent. Wait, what is it again? The seventh continent. The seventh continent. In the seventh continent that I didn't know anything about. I am uh, uh, very woefully ignorant of uh Hanukkah's stuff like I like I've seen both funny games you know I've seen uh what was the movie that we saw through the film fest Amor Amor seen Amor that was actually the movie Adriana you know that's the movie that made us quit the film society or at least made me quit the film society uh well I did not know that I'm glad I did I I know now because I almost suggested that one instead. It wasn't the movie Adriana. It was know, the crowd. Do you, okay. Do you want to? Did you, have you ever heard? Oh the story, no, were there Adriana? people riffing on the movie? No, or? no, 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 no. Okay. No. What happened was at the end of the movie, which was like three hours of torture and sorrow, we were walking out, and one of the other film society patrons was like. What did you think? Normal question among cinephiles. My answer was, well, you know, it's no Dumb and Dumber, but I thought it was pretty good. <laughs> At which point, you fucking asshole. the patron well, then said, I, well, I said it just like that. Well, it's no Dumb and Dumber, but it's pretty good. And they said, what's Dumb and Dumber? At which point I was like, you've seen goddamn Dumb and Dumber. Don't you fucking lie to me. That's what I said. I didn't say that, but that's what I thought. I know. I Um, wanted to say it. And that that was like me and Melani looked at each other and we're like, this is for the birds. And we are out. Ah, Josh. I will will say this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the theater caught fire while we were leaving and everyone died. It was awful. This is a terrible story. So, yeah, that's why we... Um, yeah, no, I, 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 uh, I think there's another of, of his movies I've seen, uh, Michael Hanukkah, but the white I, ribbon, we saw the oh, white ribbon together. Yes. Didn't we? The white ribbon. Yes, 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 yes. Thank you for reminding me, but that's about it, Adriana. Mm. So I haven't done the digging that I would like. And so I didn't even know what this was. And when you suggested it, I thought, awesome, that's something I haven't seen. And then we're covering breaking the waves, a movie that for a, over two hour movie about suffering, I have watched too many times, like so many <laughs> times. And so I am actually amazed that we've never discussed it on this show. So getting an opportunity to talk about it is going to be great. But what I like is that 
you know, there was a time in my life where I had a lot of ideas, big ideas about what I thought about breaking the waves, right? You know what I mean? Like just like mm. th- theories and theses and all this stuff. Right. But in the meantime, Lars von Trier has made more movies, right? And has grown as a director. And so just his work has taken some of those ideas and smashed them into little pieces, you know, with his own sort of (laughs) running his mouth at festivals and making movies that I just are like, you know, I actually like too, but have really sort of challenged me in different ways. And I realized like, oh, okay, um, this is not that, actually. I'm going to respond to this movie not as if I'm trying to sell a thesis to get into a graduate program. And instead, I'm just going to talk about my experience of it as a as a film watcher. And I think that's much healthier than how if we were doing this podcast in like 2009, I would have been like, OK, have you guys ever heard about blah, blah, blah? You know, it would have been intolerable, yeah. intolerable. You would have put your headband on. Liam has a sweatband when we get into those territories yeah, that he it's wears. True. It's really attractive, actually. It's really cute. <laughs> oh, man. So uh, I won't I won't I won't say uh uh, I am looking forward to talking about these movies. I'm excited gives off the feeling that like, I can't wait to talk about human suffering, but I do think that these are two very interesting films. They're coming from very different places, but they both have something very interesting to say. And I'm just yeah. super excited to talk about them. And, and, and both ask a lot of the viewer. Um, yes. They're very difficult films emotionally, but, but also in terms of the, the ethical and existential questions that they grapple with. Um, and so I just thought they would make for great discussion fodder. Um, but also, <laughs> of, of course, I, I really deeply appreciate these films in different ways. And, uh, I, I connect with them in different ways. And like, am I, I've had like a, a bit of a turbulent relationship with the work of Lars von Trier. Um, and mm-hmm. when I was younger, I think I, I was a little bit more in love with breaking the waves than I am now. But I mean, I, it still made me ball my eyes out at the end. I mean, like, yeah, it it always elicits a very intense response for me. Um, but I'm just not as I'm not a, as clear on certain aspects of the film as I, I used to think I was. I think that's going to be interesting conversation. All I will say is that for those people who are like, I can't believe they're really crushing us just before the holidays. We'll do a fun, we'll record a fun holiday episode too. All right. Yeah. Whiners. Come on. <laughs> we'll do jingle all the way. Or You know, what's funny, Josh, I don't know if this is true for, for either of you two. I feel like I should have a longer list of like Christmas movies. I actually like, but I've never really thought about it. It's just not, especially like as a fan of Alonzo Duralde, whose whole career has been about right, Christmas he's movies. Mr. Christmas. You'd think I'd be like, oh, yeah, I have all these Christmas movies that I really like. And I like I've never thought about it. I've never categorized. Yeah, it. I couldn't. No. I don't. It's just not something I, I literally I have. Care two. About. I have National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation <laughs> and A Christmas Story. And that's it. That's all I got. That's that's the only Yo, bag. I don't even and like I'm not a, even I don't even reach like into Die Hard. Story. No. No, well, man. I haven't seen it in a while, to be I clear. Mean, like, it's, I'm it's not saying I'm offended by it or anything like that. So people who love it don't come for my neck. I'm just saying it's not. I watch it on TV like everybody else, but I just don't have affection for it. I'm not like, oh, this it really connects with my child. I'm just like, yeah, parts of it are funny, parts of it aren't. It's fine. Like it just doesn't mm. 
hit me. Uh, National Lampoon, definitely love it. Um, uh, Scrooged is one I grew up with. Uh, oh yeah, I love Scrooged. Yeah, 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 yeah. And 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 <laughs> un- 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 my uh, big know. Christmas movie. Yeah, do when it. I was a kid was Jingle All the Way <laughs> with Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> and Sinbad. I love it. I mean, I we can. Oh, and Phil Hartman. So much. Oh, oh man, I miss Phil Hartman. Okay, hey, <laughs> let's let's transition here so we can get this episode going because we got a lot to talk about. So uh, we're gonna we're gonna. Uh, run through our thank yous pretty quick here. First of all, thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon. Uh, if you are curious about that, head on over to patreon.com backslash Cinepunk, C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X. Um, uh, we're, we're hoping to <laughs> come through with some new things for y'all, uh, specifically content, but we'll, you know, I might have some uh, new coffee and T-shirts soon and things like that. So, uh, hey. If you're someone who's been like, hey, I would like a shirt, and you support us on Patreon, shoot us a message. I would like to hook you up. Uh, we also, of course, want to thank our friend Chris Reject uh, and and all of his uh, fellow uh, toilers at Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations. Uh, Josh, if, if I wanted to get a shirt that had both of our faces on it, and then underneath it said, uh, brown magic for that ass, uh, where would I get that printed? <laughs> At xlvacx.com in the Lehigh Valley. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations. They're, they're going to print what you want. They're going to do it for you real nice. They do great work. Uh, we uh, you know we got our shirts at Rough Cut printed by them because we love them and we love the work that they do. Uh, I just don't think it makes sense to get stuff printed anywhere else. So head on over, xlvacx.com. We also want to thank uh, SS Coffee Roasters and our man, uh, 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 Aaron Dahlbeck. Aaron Dahlbeck. Yeah. yeah. They make, you know, he, he, he makes great coffee. He roasts it when you order it. He uh, sends it out. And if you have questions about his coffee, his tea, his merch, he's there to answer. And it's just, it's just a company really <laughs> devoted to demystifying quality coffee. And I think that's great. I think that's uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, an awesome thing to be a part of. We're hoping to collaborate with them soon. Um, I just haven't gotten that connection going in a while. But uh, the one thing that is true is that if you go to order something from them and you put in the code CINEPUNKS at checkout, C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X, you're going to get 10% off your order. Come on. Boom. And you're going to tell Aaron and the good people at Essex that you listen to CINEPUNKS, which is just going to make you cooler in their eyes. And also, Aaron just announced today, Aaron and his band Be Well just announced a string of dates with uh, Hot Water Music and with Strike Whoa. Anywhere, two of my most favorite bands of all time. So, you know, it's going to be a hell of a show if you're going to that one. I'm going to be at the Garwood Show on the Saturday night, so holla at your boy. But um, come out, support Aaron, both in Be Well and also with his coffee, because he is a dope dude and one of my favorite people in the world. So if, if that means anything to you that which Josh loves, then you know what? I love Aaron Dalbeck and you should throw him some love as well. Cause he deserves it. Dude is a goddamn angel. Oh, <laughs> well, Hey, thank you to all those folks. Uh, what do we, Adriana, you're our guest. And I know that you've listened to the show before. And, and you've so, done this a couple times, a couple times. And so we look, here's the thing. We need your help. What what do we do now? There's a thing that we always do, and I, I just <laughs> every time I'm like, what the fuck is it called? I just don't remember. It's a thing. It's like a segment. 
You know what I'm saying? Like there's there's a yeah, thing. Yeah. We've done it 143 times before now. And this is the 144th time we're about to do it. Do you know what it's called, perhaps? Uh, I think you both might be referring to a little thing called Whack and On Track. Whack and On Track! Yes, That was one of the best ones that we've had. That was really good. It's so good. So, Adriana, as our guest, would you like to go first? Would you like to go second? Or would you like to go last? It's your call. Um. I'll go first. I know Liam is still trying to come I up know. with seriously. I'm scraping my brain right now. Segment, yeah, 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 so yeah. I'll just I'll just pad your time out a little bit. Um, <laughs> okay. So there's a there's been a lot of whack in my life lately. Just personal things that I don't really want to get into on the podcast. But uh, I mean, it, and just having talked with both of both of you recently like i know it seems like we've all just been having kind of a rough time um for various reasons but in terms of agreed like film or you know tv or music stuff i've been doing it's been pretty on track um last almost a week ago i went to see benedetta which actually How was that movie? I loved it, and it actually has it has some the- elements in common with Breaking the Waves. I think in terms of the way you know it it focuses on rigid power structures and and sort of like the patriarchal um, element of the church, and you know the way that sex can be like liberating but also somebody's damnation um and you know i like i think i think some of the uh more salacious or like over the top elements of the film have been kind of overstated a bit on social media and in certain reviews um because I mean, there, those 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 elements are very much present, but there's also like I think the the film is like very emotional emotionally rich, and um, I I mean I I I'm not the person who would like be able to speak to this, but I've been told by uh, Catholics and theologians that the the way it depicts the church is very accurate for that time period, and and the Latin is also very accurate and that there just seems to be a lot of intricate um, attention paid to detail. Uh, and I, I, I kind of got, got that watching it, even though like that isn't my area of expertise. Um, and it's also incredibly funny, which I, I don't yeah. think a, a lot of people have been stressing in their, uh, in, in reviews, but um, I was, film is the fourth man which seems to be the film of his that the least amount of people have seen um but i think it has a lot in common with benedetta so uh i don't really know where i was going with that but i i enjoyed (laughs) i enjoyed benedetta and uh (laughs) what else is on track for me um i really want to see it it looks cool I just, you it know, is. haven't had I think time you, yet. I think you'll appreciate it, Liam. Also, um, 
Altered Innocence recently put out the Fred Halstead collection, uh, which it's a, it's a it's a Blu-ray collection of four of his films, um, and uh, in case people listening don't know who Fred Halstead was, he was um, a gay filmmaker who was active throughout the 70s and 80s um, and he made a series of experimental avant-garde adult films um, that uh, were very much steeped in in the sort of leather and S&M gay subculture of Los Angeles and um, his films are very polarizing you know they feature I think it was one of not the first, I think Wakefield Pool might have beaten him uh, to the punch, so to speak, but uh, it was one of the first films to depict fisting. Uh, wow. Uh, L.A. Plays Itself and then Sex Tool, both both films feature fisting scenes. But um, to get to the point, uh, it's an extremely impressive collection Um the restorations look beautiful. There's a lot of really, really great supplementary material that, they, that was all produced by Elizabeth Perchell, who um, is is a brilliant and insightful queer film historian. Uh, she does a podcast called Ask Anybody that I highly recommend. Um, she produced all of the supplements on uh, in the collection. Um, there's a couple of video essays, one by Whit Strub and another by Caden Mark Gardner, who's one of my favorite uh, current film writers. And it's just, it's a, I mean, it's very clear that a lot of time and care was put into the release. And uh, I encourage everyone to buy a copy because this kind of queer film preservation is not really possible without community support. Um, and you know, even if you're not into like adult films or gay adult films, uh, they're still worth watching just as, 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 you know, art pieces. Um, they're, they're very formally adventurous and, um, challenging films. And so I think if you're into experimental filmmaking, avant-garde filmmaking, uh, you'd also find a lot to appreciate, and I feel like I've been talking about this a lot, so I'm gonna end it <laughs> end it there. But <laughs> I was thrilled when they announced it. I'm I'm, awesome. I'm very curious about it. Yeah, I don't know anything about that. Uh, yet Definitely another would like to see it. Yet another place where we're ignorant, Josh. That's I. It's it's <laughs> well, it's one of the like the good things about the podcast, but I think it's like something that is interesting is how often. Like we, you know, I think a lot of times people start a podcast because they feel like they have something to say, but I feel like so often we're like, man, I don't know anything about that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, we, I kind of think like that's antithetical to our entire oeuvre is that like we more so just are like actually discovering things as we move yeah, through these episodes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and yeah. Uh, I don't know if that's attractive or not, but it's what it is. <laughs> so I'm not going to apologize for it. You know no, what I'm saying? No, never. It's not cool. for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, Adriana. Yeah. Uh, Josh, do you want to go or do you want me to go? I'll go, man. So I, I mean, I um, can if you want me to. 
since we last recorded. Sure. I don't know if it's whack or if it's on track. Yeah. But I turned 44 years old. Oh, you're so old. Which is, as I've expressed to everybody, so many more fours than I was pleasant with. I was going to be happy with. (laughs) It's a lot more fours than I wanted for my birthday, (laughs) which I've done 44 times now. But it's cool. Whatever, man. I'm old. It's all good. Um, Despite being 44 years old, I went to a couple shows. Around here, I saw the Wu Tang Clan. <laughs> That's fun. <laughs> it was it was uh it was actually just Raekwon and Ghostface Killer and the Jizza, and um, it was a Hell time. Yeah. It was a time. There was a lot to digest. It was the Three Chambers tour, so they were just doing their seminal records. So, uh, Jizza did uh, Liquid Swords, of course, of course. Now here's the thing, y'all. Like the Jizza did his set with his right hand in his pocket, like in his jeans pocket. And all I could think of was a high school kid giving an oral report. He had sure. a mic in one yeah. hand, yeah. spitting fire. My man was on fire and he had all the, he, dude, he did the things. Don't get it twisted. The jizza is no one to sleep upon. You know what I'm saying? But he did it with his hand in his pocket. And I was like, this motherfucker is giving an oral report. That's what this looks like. <laughs> it was just intense. And then Ghost came out and he had this leather jacket with this gigantic fur lapel. And my man looked like a lion. And him and Raekwon came out too. And they both like, it was a lot, man. It was a lot. It was cool. Like I had a good time. Uh, I'll be honest though. Uh, if I were to tell you that Ghostface Killer selling commemorative plates with the cover of Iron Man on it was the weirdest thing of the night. I'd be lying because it wasn't just saying it was, there was a lot of merchandising that I was like, okay, I guess that's a thing. Sure. We were at the TLA. It was a lot. I, I don't know. I was, it was good though. I got to hear a bunch of songs that I was pretty stoked on and like, it was really fun just watching, like, so um, Ghost did Iron Man and Raekwon did Only Built for Cuban Links. What? And that shit was fire. It was really fun. And then they did a bunch of, like, Wu-Tang songs, of course. And, um, yeah, it was a lot. It was a lot. And then um, wow. I saw The Bouncing Souls. See, here's the thing, y'all. I have a weird relationship with The Bouncing Souls in that I'm not so much a fan. I mean, like, if you grew up from a certain part of New Jersey at a certain time, you saw the bouncing souls if you are of a certain constitution. And I've seen the bouncing souls a lot of times. Right? I always feel and like I don't th- I always feel like I don't like soccer or beer enough to appreciate the bouncing souls. <laughs> and that's fair. But I mean, you gotta understand, man. Like I've seen them with lifetime in basements so many times throughout my entire college career. Like it was those bands, it was Ensign, like that was like New Jersey punk rock hardcore for me, right? And so it's such that I would pay money to never see the bouncing souls again. If there was a person that could be like, Hey guy, here's my $70. Every time the concept of me seeing the bouncing souls live comes up, I want you to just slap me across the face and remind me that that's not what we do anymore. And I want you to earn your goddamn money. So let's do this. But, um, I went because uh, it was after band practice and uh Bo was going, I was like, you know what? I guess I'll go. It's cool. And, um, it was also at the new Brooklyn bowl in Philadelphia, right next to the, um, Fillmore. And I wanted oh, to see the new Oh, sure, band. sure, sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it was pretty good. I mean, like, the Souls are fine. Face-to-face played before them. 
And um, their bass player is amazing. And it was, I'm, I'm not so much a fan. The last time I saw Face to Face was in 1994 when they opened for the Mighty Mighty Bostones at the Trocadero on the Don't Know How to Party tour. That was how old I was. Super old. But uh, it was cool seeing Face to Face again. So that was fun. Um, saw Man, a couple that, other things. Talk about a band that I saw a couple times but never really liked. Face to Face. Yeah. Same. Like, I, well, I mean, I saw them once, but I also was like, I don't give a, like one thin shit about no big choice or any of their other records. But then I watched them. I was like, hey, you know what? These guys, they got something. They might be, you know, a band pretty big one day. And um, so that was fun. But then, like, I, you know, that was cool. Right. I didn't see any movies. I saw Rocky Four, the recut version. Uh, at the Philadelphia Film Society Theater, the, the formerly the Prince Theater. Sure. And uh, so apparently Sylvester Stallone during pandemic decided to recut Rocky Four, And that's what I watched. And Sylvester Stallone was there, as was um, uh, the guy who plays Polly, Burt Young. <laughs> and it was, you know what I'm saying? Like, there are just certain things that you're like standing there next to Dan Scully and you're like, is this really my life? Is Brett Young seriously standing right here right now for us to watch Rocky Four in 2021? The Shout out to that Scully. question. Totally, yeah. That's what happened. And they so his me, and it was just a weird moment. You know what I'm saying? Y'all, it's like it was just like, how is this is this life? Like, what is going on? What and why am I wearing scrubs? How am I here at the film society <laughs> that now owns the prince? What is going on? I feel like just like waking up like after a thousand year nap and being like, what year is it, man? Like having a beard and all that kind of stuff. But um, so that was pretty cool. And then everything <laughs> went crazy on me. And um Melani tested positive for the COVID. And then my brother did, and then my nephew did, and then my father did, oh and then God. I took a whole bunch of tests, and none of them came out positive. And I'm like, how in the good goddamn, like, am I a carrier? Am I an asymptomatic carrier? Am I like the plague that is the bad luck to those that I meet in my path? So then that sent me down a really fun existential manhole. That was a good time. And then... I've been having so Cross Keys has been working on this new LP and we're working towards it and everybody's been writing and we've been working on it since the beginning of pandemic, which is a lot. Right. And like I'm in a band with my favorite people in the world. It's literally the one thing I've ever wanted to do in my entire life. You know what I'm saying? Like. I got the guy from Kill the Man Who Questions in my band. I got the guy from Kid Dynamite in my band. I got Dave Adolph, my best friend since seventh grade in the band. I have Andrew, who is one of my very, very clear, like, close friends right now. And they're all in this one band, and we're making that bang, bang, rock and roll. And um, I have had to come to grips with the fact that I feel completely creatively void. And I guess I have to apologize to you too, Liam, because I just feel like, dude, I feel zapped. I feel like I make nothing good. I feel like I'm bringing everything down and I'm having just a horrible, horrible moment of not feeling like my best creative self and Stop. everything that is, I'm just being honest, man. Like I know, but you everything don't have to that I've been working towards everything that I've been good at. I just feel like I'm not good at. And in this weird upended world, it just feels like, Everything that used to sustain me is now fucking me up. And everything that used to fuck me up is now keeping me going. 
And that's like the weirdest thing, right? Because like for me, Cinepunks and Crosskeys and any other creative endeavor that I've ever had has always been a response to my everyday life, which was working in a psych unit for almost 20 years for thankless people and for people that didn't give a fuck about me. And so I'm just having this like weird moment where now I have this weird job where they're like, well, we don't really know what you're doing, but here's a shit ton of money to do it. And guess what? You get to work with your homies. And how about it's not going to you don't have to fight anybody. It's great. You feel like not having those shitty tattoos that you've collected over 44 years of your life. Guess what? We're going to get rid of those, too. So I'm like, yo, if only I lived across the street from DeBruno Brothers and that's where I work, this would be. And it's like, wait a minute. You're also across the street from DeBruno Brothers. So did you want some awesome desserts or how about some beautiful coffee or maybe a, an explicit cut of meat? That's just insane. Hey, guess what? Right across the street from your work, outside the door. So like all those things are now like, yo, this is the first year I didn't eat turkey loaf for Christmas, for Thanksgiving. Think about that. Turkey loaf. I ate that shit for 18 years. And now it's like, that's not reality anymore. And so I'm in this situation where I get to talk about ink and dagger every day and remove my ugly tattoos. And that shit is dope. But everything else, all the other things that like made life worthwhile is now falling around and breaking apart in my own hands. And I'm having the worst fucking time. So that's whack. That's not my fault. Oh, um, Josh, man. I'm so sorry, man. I'm sorry. Yeah, I haven't seen any movies. I haven't like done anything. Like I've just sat here and been like, how now come I feel even worse than subjecting you to these two movies. <laughs> at least I woke up at five thirty in the morning to see Breaking the Waves for two and oh a half God. hours today. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's cool. And yeah, that's cool because the last thing I saw last night was a family dying in the seventh continent. Also awesome. Great time. Great time. And uh, I'm not complaining, Adriana. You know, I fucking love you. So whatever. Like, it's all good. And it's like, I, okay, let's be let's be real. I'm joking. I'm smiling right now, you know. But I'm not joking because I definitely cried last night in front of Dave Wagon Shoots, who was in Kid Dynamite and Ink and Dagger and Good Riddance because I can't make words and sing songs. You understand where I'm at right now? <laughs> you, you, okay, okay, but you can do that. That's a thing that you oh, yeah, can do. Yeah, that's a thing, is it, Liam? Because yes, let me tell you, yes. it does not feel like that's me right now. It feels like, here's the thing, like, dude, I just got a practice space just so I could sit in a room away from like everybody and scream. Okay. Like, but not even I, songs. You should cut yourself a little bit of a break because I mean, you've been going through a lot lately and that stress is not conducive to creativity. You I, I actually, I, dear. I think that's true. I actually think it's the other way around, right? Like you are so used to having a job that while it gives you a sense of meaning, it's your cross to bear. Like I would argue in the context of the movies we're talking about today, right? You've viewed your job like uh, best going back to the ship. That's how you viewed your vocation for 18 years. And now you have a job that, like, you know, doesn't give you a lot of sense of purpose, but it also is pleasant. 
and it doesn't make you feel <laughs> abused and mistreated. And uh, you learned over the period of 18 years how to live your life in the conditions of suffering and then translate that suffering into like a romantic art thing and in a very sort of punk way. And now that your life is pleasant, it's actually harder for you to create, I think. And that's not uh, something to feel bad about. It's just a reality that you were used to one thing and now you have to get used to something else. And uh, I don't think that makes it easier. Like it's really shitty and it's going to feel bad. Like I, I'm not diminishing your feelings about it, but I do want to point out you're adjusting to your life circumstances. And in the end, you're going to figure out how to create because your creating wasn't out of suffering. It was your creative response to suffering, but the right. suffering wasn't the source of the creativity in the same way that the suffering isn't the source of anything. I mean, really that's when we get there, that's the, 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 the thesis, the thing for which we must struggle with when it comes to breaking the waves is, uh, is, is the, is the suffering itself meaningful or is it meaningful for other reasons? You know, uh, is, is, uh, mm. uh, I mean, I think quite literally one of the questions that working, breaking the ways for Von Trier is, uh, is, is Christ a martyr or a suicide, right? Does he mm. choose death, uh, because he chooses death or is it just the inevitable result of love? And that's what he's trying to explore in this movie by being very mean to, to a woman, which I think is a problem. But we'll get we'll get there um, in the same sense. Like, it's really easy to feel like because for 18 years, this was how you figured out how to survive that, like, there's no other way to be in the world. But like, that's just not real, man. Like, you are who you are. And that stuff came out of you because of who you are. And you'll figure out how to get there in other ways. You know? And, and I don't know that there's, like, an easy... I mean, there are lots of methods you can try to, like, prime the pump and whatever. But none of those are, like, magic spells, right? They're just various tools yeah. that might work and they might not work. And who knows? There's no, there's no, like, rosy sky when it comes to this. The only thing I can say that I hope is encouraging is, like, it's obviously temporary. Like that's not convenient right now because you need it to to be over while you're working on a record, you know. Like uh, yeah. that that's that's that tension is real, but it's it is you struggling with a temporary situation. There's no way that this isn't temporary. This is not who you are. But I do want I do understand that like being in this situation right now is going to cause some panic because uh, you want to get this record done and you want to share it with the world. Yeah. But like that you're going to have to learn how to write from this different place and, and give yourself some patience because the panic I don't think is going to help you right now. I think the panic no. is just going to continue to make you feel like, Oh, I can't do anything. And I think getting past that is going to be helpful and finding other places to write from, you know what I mean? Uh, but yeah, it's, they're, they're it, I will say that I'm not completely toothless in this fight, right? Like even though I'm on the ropes, even though I feel down, I have you, I have Adriana. I have both you guys. Like you guys are in my corner and that gives me strength, you know? And like, I talked to Brian McTernan today from be well, because he is my friend and he has words of encouragement. And he's like, look, man, I'm a singer too. I know exactly what you're going through right now. And it's like one of those moments where it's like, just not even feeling seen, but feeling identified with. Yeah. You yeah. know what I mean? Which is like kind of like the manner of any songwriter, really. Like that's where we're going for. And to to be there now with someone who you look up to and admire, just like the way I look up to and admire both of you, 
it's it's fulfilling and it's empowering in ways that I can't really say, but it is, you know what I mean? It's like, it's there. And of course, Milani always being in my corner and like being my cheerleader, like that's very encouraging, but also it's like, it's just like the stress app, like the fucking um, meditation app that I got to try and sure. meditate my mind. Yeah. And then just reminds me every week that I don't have time to meditate or I'm not doing it right. And that's now an anxiety producing thing. It's like that. You know what I'm saying? Like, ah, okay. Here's the alarm telling me that I'm not doing right again this week. Like that kind of party, which is like, it's a lot. It's a lot, guys. I don't mean to <laughs> emotionally break down again because two nights in a row is just unseemly. Don't we agree? No, stop. But it's also, yeah. it's it's where I'm at, dude. You know what I mean? Like, that's just how, how I'm doing. Well, the, and, the, uh, the, the few tenacious patient people who listen to this fucking show listen to it because <laughs> on the show yeah they, right they, they listen to it because <laughs> they care about us right uh and you know we probably get new listeners who are like what the fuck is this shit but but you know the people who really keep listening to the show is we're part of the show so you sharing about your life is part of the show and there's no reason to ever feel bad about that at all uh i i will say um uh, you know, while you've been talking, I've come up with a million things for me to talk about. On my, you know, but uh, <laughs> no, right. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, but no, but and, uh, go ahead. Also, the new chain whip BP is really good. <laughs> Yo, that's so funny. That was one of the things I thought of. I was also going to remind you that you went to that one step closer show, which I believe I was did. another band show too. But I was jealous because I wanted to see one step closer. <laughs> they were great. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, Liam, what have you done recently that is on track and or whack? I mean, I'm I'm willing to move on for the sake of time, but I do want to not completely move on and say, bro, like it's not just us. Like you have a ton of people who love you and are in your corner. Yeah. Uh, even even just the people who are fans of your band, which you know is far more people than you are willing to accept. That Cross Keys, <laughs> though not a a world traveling band, has a much bigger fan base than anyone in the band was expecting like that's just the reality and those true. those that people are pulling for you too they're not you know the people who love your art or your podcast or whatever else that you're doing interesting um they're not consumers they're not your fucking customers right they're people who appreciate what you're doing and that's going to come out of your life so you don't need to apologize and hide what you're going through this is where you're at and you know uh, i i I think patience right now is hard, and so I won't bother to say it because you know you already know that's what you need. But I, I want to say what what you also need is a bit of kindness for yourself, you know, to to acknowledge that things are hard right now. Even even though one aspect of your life is easier, uh, there's other things that are hard. You just talked about every almost everyone you know got COVID, man. Like you know, yeah, or, man. Or, or even like being with your band, like you couldn't be with your band while that was going on. So, you know. I think Adriana's right that you need to have some understanding for yourself and then realize that like the other place you need to be understanding is that your life has changed and you know, there's a bit of adjustment to that, you know, the same way that like I get frustrated out here. Well, I get frustrated with a lot of stuff. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a much more unhappy person than you just generally speaking. So I'm always <laughs> mad or, or unhappy about something. But one of the things that's frustrating about being out here is feeling like I don't have like a big network of people. Well, you know, I did move to a, the Midwest 
during a pandemic. During a pandemic. So yeah, like, you, did that. you know, it's not just that I'm a loser, though I might in fact be a loser now, <laughs> but actually the circumstances are also part of it. And I think sometimes it's easy to take those circumstances and think of them as uh, endemic to who you are. Like this is who you are now. You know, you're the person who doesn't mm. create. Well, no, you're in a circumstance that has made it, it changed your, it, it, and, it, and it doesn't necessarily mean it's made it more difficult. You might find over time that this is a much more easier way to create, but it's still new and the newness will make it weird at first, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's just, I, you ever just get that feeling that you're letting everybody down? Oh, constantly. Are you kidding me? I, 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 I run an unsuccessful podcast network. I let people down constantly. <laughs> I have I have an army of people who are consistently let down, whether they be uh, current or former staffers or the variety of people who <laughs> listen or used to listen, you know, but it's just life, you know, it, it is what it is. So, yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not diminishing that it, it, when I'm feeling that way. You know, Suze or anyone else can say, no, that's not real. That's not true. Whatever. It doesn't change the fact. It's still it's when you feel it, you feel it so deeply. There's no talking you out of it. But even yeah, though I know I'm I can't talk right you out. I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> I know. Even though there's no way to talk you out of it. I'm still going to say it. It's not real. You're not really letting everyone down. You I'm sure there are individual situations where uh, you're just not able to be there for people or do the things that people want. But if those people love you, they're not going to hold that against you, man. You know, like that's not, yeah. that's not real. That's not a really a relationship. A relationship is based upon forgiveness and understanding of people's limitations. You know, like that's just, that's just what it is. That's what it is to be in a relationship with someone, whether that's a friendship or even a working relationship, you know? So, and you already know there's one place where you have showed up a lot and apparently are being very appreciated, which is your work, you know? So like yeah. also be happy with the idea that like, at least in this area that used to be a big source of pain and disappointment for you, there's a feeling of like comfort. You know what I mean? Yeah. hundred percent. Anyway, anyway, I don't, I, I, anyway. I, I hate to move on, no, but just right, in the interest Liam, of I appreciate time. you saying all that. It really does make me feel better. Well, I just love you, man. And you know, I don't want to, I don't want anyone to think I'm trying to fix your stuff because you got to go through what you got to go through. But I just want to say, so you know that the reality is how much people love you and how creative you are and you know, how you just can't stop starting new bands. It's just who it's, it's just part of your life. Um, Talk okay. about cross to bear baby, but go well, on Liam. What have you done lately? Know, that is I, on track and Jesus. or whack. Well, okay. So <laughs> when you mentioned uh, that we hadn't actually, recorded in a very long time, which again, apologies to everyone for that. I realized, oh, actually the window, I was looking in the window of like the last couple of weeks. I'm like, yeah, I haven't done anything. And then when I opened up the window broader, I realized, oh wait, no, I've done a bunch of stuff that I haven't talked about on the on the thing. So I'm not going to get into it, but me and Adriana both went to Harathon. It was great. I had a great time. Oh yeah. Indeed. I was so jealous. There were so Adriana, many. you had fun at, at Harathon? Yeah, I had to leave early, but while I was there, for the time that I was there, I had a great time. It was really nice seeing people I hadn't seen in like two years. Uh, and, you know, everyone was masked. Yep. Um, you know, proof of vaccination was required. Uh, so it, it I, I felt pretty safe, too. Yeah, I agree. And, nice, nice. Uh, and uh, I got to see a movie I hadn't seen before that I absolutely loved. 
uh, called Death Game, which I talked oh. about. I, I For the sake of just saving time, I won't go into it here. Uh, if you're curious about it, I did talk about it a bit in the uh, Praising Kane episode I was on um, yep. over on Cinema Smorgasbord. Uh, so I also go listen wanna, to that if you want to hear about Death Game. I also want to point Carol people film. to the uh, <laughs> Twitch of the Death Nerve episode they did that was about the fest. That was a really good episode and a good summation. They went into details on each of the movies. Um, yeah, so Harthon was great. Uh, I also finally saw uh, Shang-Chi. Uh, and the legend oh, yeah. of the 10 rings. I didn't see it when it first came out. I wasn't going to theaters. Uh, it was finally available online. So I watched it. I thought it was cool. I don't know. I, I know it didn't have quite the negative backlash that the Eternals did, but it did have some, I definitely saw people who I generally think of as Marvel people who were like, Oh, it's stupid. Oh, it's bad. Blah, blah. And I, I don't get that at all. I thought it was fun. Me neither. I liked the Kung Fu. I didn't mind the CGI sort of explosions at the end. I thought, you know, the performances were cool. I get that it feels t- to some extent outside of the general canon, but it's obviously not, right? There's lots of stuff in it that's going to connect to other stuff. So if you're only mm-hmm. in this for all the connective tissue, I think it's there. I think you just, you know, sorry, it's not another Thor movie. I mean, I'm actually stoked on the next Thor movie, but you know what I mean. Sorry, it's not like yeah. uh, an obvious Avengers movie, but just be patient. You know, I think I think it's going in that direction. I had fun with it. I don't, you know, whatever. Uh, I saw the new Bond, No Time to Die. It's fine. Oh. It's fine. Yeah, uh, just fine. Yeah, I for like me, Daniel Craig. Are you into Daniel Craig as Bond? You into that? Here's the deal. I really like. Well, I haven't watched them in a long time, but I have positive memories of Casino Royale and uh, Quantum of Solace, right? Mm. Uh, Skyfall, I'm kind of medium on. Like, mm. I'm just kind of like, it's fine, I guess. Parts of it were cool. Parts of it, I think, were kind of whack. And then the the last one was, uh, what's it called? Oh, I forget what it was called. The last one that just came out before this one. Um I, I couldn't remember, other than the opening sequence in Mexico City, I couldn't remember a single other aspect of the movie. Like, just not a damn thing. <laughs> and so that makes me think I must not have liked it that much because I couldn't. I started No Time to Die, and I'm like, what the fuck happened before this? Like, I could not remember. <laughs> um, there are parts of No Time to Die I thought were really great, uh, and I think it's a fine sort of goodbye. But I think that, you know, the main uh, villain in the film is uh, Rami Malek, and uh, – I don't think they did any work to make me care about that character. Like he's just there. And I'm like, okay, why is he doing this? What's happening? What is it's, there's some details there. Like it's not completely a blank, but not enough for me to like connect. And I just think, um, for this sort of final movie, there's lots of fun action and stuff, but there's also a lot of like emotional content and I just didn't connect to all of it the way I wanted to. So whatever. It's fine. I mean, I, you know, they let me, they, I guess you could say I was disappointed, but I'm also not like the biggest Bond fan. So I guess it doesn't matter mm. that I was disappointed because who am I? You know, uh, I also saw The Eternals, uh, which I also thought was pretty good. You know, I don't know. I guess a lot of people hated it, but uh, I don't know. thought it was pretty good. It's not my favorite Marvel movie or anything, but I didn't find it terrible either it just was you know it was pretty good i don't know did you guys see the eternals (laughs) i have yet to see it i did not see it yet 
I haven't seen it either. I'm honestly, I'm I'm kind of burned out burned out on the uh, the MCU. Sure. Yeah. I mean, and I'm super burned out on MCU discourse. Oh uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> that was the and deal, also- right? Go ahead. Uh, no, you go ahead. I'm not exactly sure what I was even going to say. I mean, what I was going to say is, I'll be honest, I partly saw it because of the discourse, because so many people were declaring it not just their least favorite Marvel movie, but maybe one of the worst movies they'd ever seen. And I just was like, come on, it can't be that bad. Uh, so maybe, I don't know, maybe I was a little too jammed up to to not hate it going in. But I saw it with Suze and, you know, it was long. I will admit it's a little long. But uh, was it, like a three hour movie. I don't even remember now. It's it's not short, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> but was I mad? Like, I just... Uh, let me see. 157 minutes? Yeah, that's pretty damn long. It's um, a lot of movie, yeah. But I don't know. There were parts of it I thought were kind of cool. Uh, I like ideas in it. I guess it's a lot of CGI blasty-blasty, so if, if that's, like, what people are bummed on. But it's also fucking weird, and I think even though it didn't scratch that itch in a way that I was like super excited about, I did just appreciate that it was weird. The only part about it that really mm-hmm. kind of got on my nerves is, you know, they they take one of these, um, one of these deviant characters and over time he like develops a personality, you know, and then they mm-hmm. just like, then that just like doesn't matter. And I'm like, it's weird that in a movie about the Eternals, the deviants are kind of like a subplot. <laughs> And they aren't really important to the plot of the movie. <laughs> that was weird to me. I thought I was a little like, huh, I don't know. Okay. All right. I guess. <laughs> uh, so that, you know, otherwise though, it was, you know, it was fine. It, it, I will say, uh, the post credit stuff got me a little too excited about certain nerdy things. And so I kind of thought mm-hmm. like, well, that's a bummer. I wish I was as excited about the movie as I was about the post credit scenes. <laughs> so, you know, that, that might be a bad sign. Um, but I wasn't mad, which I think a lot of people were very mad after seeing it. So whatever. It's fine. It looks nice. Whatever. Mm. Okay. Um, and then cool, I also cool. saw a little movie called The Beta Test. Have you guys seen this? Nope. I have not, but I, I've heard of it. It's by the uh, – his name escapes me. But it's, it's by the guy who did Thunder Road and um, yep. the uh, Wolf of Snow Wolf of Hollow. Snow Hollow, yeah. Yeah, Jim Cummings. Um, <laughs> That's it. People who are sick of his shtick which is like, I'm a frustrated man and I'm yelling. Uh, And usually a cop. Yeah, in this movie, he is, again, a terrible man. This time an agent. He's an agent. Uh, And people have been like, oh, is it a movie negative about agencies? Uh, So negative about agencies, he got dumped by his. His agency let him go after the movie came out because it's so negative on agents. Obviously Uh, touched a nerve there. Yeah, I mean, they you know they wished him well. There was no hard feelings, but they were like, "Yeah, it's not a good look for us to keep you on after that." So, see you later. <laughs> so, peace out, dog. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it is what it is. Uh, I I thought it was great. I think it's really really good. Um, I think it's. I think it's a, a. There's a reading of the film that it's an anti cancel culture movie, and I don't think that's true. I think it's actually about uh, in this world where there are actually consequences for your actions, uh, horrible men have to realize like they can't just be randomly horrible anymore. And to be fair, like this dude is pretty bad, 
but he just gets worse because he's so afraid of people finding out that he's bad. You know what I mean? Like it's like, he's not a good dude, but he's not a monster either. But because he's so worried about being perceived as a monster, he just ramps up being bad until it reaches a caricature adventure movie level of him being horrible, you know, just him just doubling down on being a bad person. And I thought it was really, really good. But again, I'm not sick of Jim Cummings shtick of just being like a toxic man. That's what these movies are about. They're about toxic men mm. and he's taking it to another level here. Um, and I thought it was pretty good. Now um, the people who love him are calling it brilliant his real masterpiece, you know, whatever. I wouldn't go that far either. I mean, I think some people have really drank the Kool-Aid on this guy, uh, but, I, but I think it's good. I think it's worth watching. Uh, and I, I know I'd love to hear other people's takes on it. So if you're a listener and you check it out and you're like, no, it's terrible or no, it's really good. Let me know because I, you know, I, I think there's still a discussion about, even though I think the movie's very well executed, it's very funny. Um, and it does a lot of things very well. Like um, he has a number of, scenes where he's dealing with anxiety about stuff. So he's sort of in his imagination about what could happen. And those scenes are filmed almost like a giallo. Like they're very upsetting, like very nightmarish in a way. And I was like, Oh man. And it's funny, like watching it, I was like, ah, it's really weird. Like it, I wonder if he knows like about Italian, like about giallo films. Cause that's what it reminds me of is that kind of like, I don't know, that kind of sequence. And then I was listening to a podcast he was on and he was like, yeah, that part was kind of like a giallo. And I was like, ah, that's my man. All right. <laughs> um, so I think there's a lot of quality there. But I, I do think that there's a question to be had about if he accomplishes what he's trying to do, which is in all these movies, he's trying to deconstruct this uh, this patriarchal model, I'm not convinced he's successful, you know, like as much as I think he's pretty good, I don't know that these movies work the way he thinks they do. So, you know, I'd love to have that, just, you know, conversation with people. So if you see it and you have an opinion, hit me up. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's it. The only other thing I was going to mention really quickly is uh, there's a new show on HBO Max called the sex lives of college uh, girls. And uh, it, it is, I, I started watching it because um one of my favorite people from Dimension 20 is on it. <laughs> uh, you know, my nerdy Dungeons and Dragons show. Uh, they're uh -huh. a regular character on the show. So I started watching it because of that. And it's really good. And uh, I didn't know that uh, Timothy Chalamet has a sister. And she's uh -huh. on it. She's one of the main characters on it. And I think that's pretty funny. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, it's pretty good. It's, it's uh, you know, it's a comedy about college kids. Uh, it You know, it's, it's goofy. It's very like... Uh, uh, sitcom-y, um, but I don't know. I like it a lot, and uh, there's a character on it who's a, a Indian uh, woman who's trying to make it in comedy, and they do a lot of like dealing with toxic comedy people, and I appreciate that aspect of the show. I think it's done pretty well. So anyways, uh, yeah, Sex Lives of College Girls on HBO Max. I'm enjoying it a lot. There's only a few episodes left. They've been dropping them like three episodes at a time, so making it really easy for me to binge it really hard, uh, <laughs> and so I've been doing that. But uh, yeah, that's about it for me. So that was long. That was a long whacking on track. So we're going to yeah. take a quick break, and then we're going to come back and talk about two very good but very heavy movies after the break <laughs>
We're back. So we have our guest on the show, Adriana. 
And she chose two movies because Liam was like, let's watch Bummers for Christmas. Yep. <laughs> and so we watched Michael Hanukkah's the, the Seventh Continent, and we watched Lars von Trier's Breaking the Waves. Now, here's the thing, right? Like, as far as Michael Hanukkah goes, I kind of feel like he's in that gray area that's inhabited by certain A-tour directors that Cinepunks just is not gone to. You know, I'll put him in the same category as a Vim Vendors. I'll put him in the same category as a Guy Madden. Uh, these, you know, filmmakers that make these challenging movies that Liam and I both together and individually have been like, yo, those movies are dope. We should probably talk about them and then just never have. So thank you for bringing Michael Hanukkah to us because, you know, Melani was a big fan of, of this director when we started dating. And then I watched a couple of the movies and they did not make me feel happy. So then I didn't watch any more movies by him. (laughs) And uh, that's what, that's what separates you from William and I in this regard. Yeah. I was going to say the the fact that they made me unhappy was one of the reasons I wanted to watch more. Yeah. But uh, you know, I don't know, Adriana, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but are all of, uh, his films like easily available you know what I mean like I feel like I don't see much of his stuff around no I mean actually that's a good question I'm not actually sure how many of his films are currently either readily available on disc or streaming um, most most of the uh, most of Hanukkah's films that I've seen I, I saw in the theater um, you know, at rep screenings, uh, but so I, 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 I don't really have an answer for you because I don't, I don't know. Um, yeah. So I, I don't feel that bad for missing out, but I do think. I mean, don't get me wrong. I still have mixed feelings about funny games, right? Mm. I'm, I'm still trying to figure out how I feel about that those movies. Actually, since it's two movies, um, yeah, but. Uh, but other than that, I have appreciated his work, so I'm a little surprised I haven't made the effort to see more stuff. But I also think um, because it is a challenging, he is a challenging director. It's it would be easier if I was had more opportunity. You know what I mean? Like if it was more like oh oh here's a new here's a maybe not a new one, but here's something by him I haven't seen it. I I don't. I don't feel like I see them a lot. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'm just sort of making excuses for having fallen behind here. Uh, what is your, Adriana, you said you've seen a lot of his films screening, like seeing them in the theater, which is awesome. Uh, wh- when did your sort of interest in him as a director start? What was your sort of entry point? Uh, definitely when I saw Funny Games um, as a teenager. Sure, um, yeah. The American that- or the original? Um, I think it was the American. Same. Yeah. But now I'm like, I mean, when did the American that come had out? Melt Banana in the soundtrack, right? Wasn't that the opening song in that one? Oh my God! Yeah, I think you're right. I totally forgot about that. Okay. Yes, that it was, was the one thing it, that was right. The original came out like right around the time because that was 2007. I was 16, mm. and that was like what I was already like well into my. Uh, I I suppose you could call it an edgelord phase and just trying to seek out the most challenging and upsetting uh, films that I could find. And sure, yeah. 
<laughs> that was the first film of his that I saw. Um, and then I just, I didn't really like, there are some, there are some filmmakers where I become obsessed and I, and I, I try to, to see their entire filmography as quickly as possible. Although with somebody like Fassbender, who is one of my favorite filmmakers, that is very difficult because he was an incredibly prolific filmmaker, but there are certain filmmakers where, you know, maybe they've only made like five or six films and then it's not, um, uh, so daunting a task. Um, but he, Hanukkah wasn't one of those filmmakers. It was more like if I just saw that I had the opportunity to see a film by him, I would take it, but I wasn't doggedly pursuing his work. Um, but I think I'm trying to, I'm trying to think what film of his I saw after that. Um, I think it might've been the seventh continent or it was either that or a more, but um, my favorite that I've seen is Benny's video, and I, and I saw that when Justin Liberty, who was just recently on the show, when he was a programmer at the Alamo Drafthouse in Yonkers, he oh, sure. showed it as part of a series called Killer Tapes and Shattered Screens, which was a collaboration between him and, oh, let me, let me look up her name, but she wrote uh, a book of essays critical essays on spectatorship in cinema and and films that involve um films that are kind of meta and involve like video or like like man bites dog sure yeah that kind of thing yeah um okay her name is is caitlin benson allett and she did a book called Killer Tapes and Shattered Screens, Video Spectatorship from VHS to File Sharing. And the series was a collaboration between her and Justin, and they basically highlighted uh, specific specific films that she wrote about in her book, and Benny's video was one of them. They also did Video Violence, Man Bites Dog, um, The Blair Witch Project. Like It was, it was a really cool series. Um, and so I went to go see Benny's video because I hadn't seen it, and I knew it was Hanukkah. And it became my favorite. Um, and that one, it seems to be one that a lot of people haven't seen. Yeah, I've never heard of it. Yeah, I don't think I've seen it. I, I've definitely heard of it, but I don't think I've seen it. Um, that one, what? I think that was the film he made after The Seventh Continent, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Huh. Um, but it's it's basically like... It's about a teenager who's obsessed with a video, capturing video, and it becomes very fucked up. Oh, yeah. Weird. <laughs> wow, that doesn't Go sound on. like him at all. <laughs> well, let's talk Let's talk specifically about this movie. Um, do you want to, Adriana, uh, tell people what the movie is about? <laughs> I guess we should I'm say. I'm so okay. bad at summaries. Oh yeah, I mean, I mean, actually, I'll have Josh do it because I think he's very good at it. But I think we should <laughs> say for both these movies, there's no way to discuss these movies in any meaningful way without spoiling. And you know, sometimes we do a good job right. of saying that ahead of time, and sometimes we don't. So I want to do a good job now and say, you know, we're we're gonna go full on in, whether <laughs> you've seen this or Spoil not. Spoil these goddamn movies, yeah. yeah. So. You know, I would if say this drop, is a pause thing that, the pause the podcast. Drop what you're doing if you haven't seen yes. either of these movies, 
and go watch them immediately. Do not resume this podcast episode <laughs> until you have seen both of these films. Or just skip to a different episode. Your call. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or pause the pause the podcast now. And welcome back. <laughs> now that you've seen Michael Hanukkah's The Seventh Continent and Lars von Trier's Breaking the Waves. Yo, that shit was uh, We were talking up, right? about The Seventh Continent. Yeah, word, right? That shit was hard. So um, Seventh Continent is about a family, like a middle-class family in Austria. And they it, it's, it's kind of a hard movie to describe in that, like, it just kind of plays out until the, the ultimate scene, right? Like the, the detail of the movie is brought, bringing the viewer's attention to like the mundanity of their everyday lives. And it's right. just these, a bunch of like almost weird non sequiturs to me. Like it's everything's like a connected, series of, of course, because it's the same people. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. definitely like a series of vignettes that is based around this concept of this vastly disappearing middle-class in this society that is just being swallowed by repetitive mundanity. Does that make, would, would you guys and, say that that's a correct? Uh, yeah, the, whole, the whole beginning. Consumerism and. Yeah. The yeah. whole beginning of the movie, there's this whole thing where he's focusing on their hands doing things. Like we don't see their mm. faces for a large section and it's just sort of like yeah. activities. And then that's weirdly mirrored at the end when they're destroying their lives and we don't really see their faces. We just see their hands and bodies like doing things. That mirroring was really interesting to me because it was like, oh, at a certain level, they're just completing tasks, whether it's. <laughs> maintaining right. their existence or destroying their lives. They're just doing stuff. You know, they're just doing stuff. And also one other thing I think it, we should note is that it takes place over the course of three years and the film is separated into three parts and each part is one year. So it, it starts in 1987 and then it moves into 1988 and then it concludes with 1989. Right. And that, it's it's funny though too because like that close up of the hands and everything and just how all the shots are really tight it reminded me of that movie from 2015 called Son of Saul. Do you guys remember that movie? Yeah, yeah. I haven't it seen it. It reminded me of that how it's an entire narrative told within a very close point of view and uh it's like just all close up shots of a, a man looking for his son during the Holocaust. Also a very fun and airy movie, not. So this had that same like vibe to me of like this, like just kind of moving through life, like with this like ramping yet subversive sense of finality and just tragedy that's in every single scene of them like pouring cereal and then like not coming away from the cereal bowl as they pour the sugar on there. And then the daughter eats it like, these kinds of like weird, like you said, Adriana, vignettes. That's what this movie felt like. I also found myself thinking about how, um, unlike Breaking the Waves, uh, for a film that is uh, essentially about a family destroying itself, quite literally, it's very much not a spectacle movie. It goes out of its way, it feels like to me, to make everything like not a spectacle, like not to ramp it mm. up. I mean, right, honest, and that just reinforces the 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 banality of yes. their existence. Yeah, I mean, I was sure. literally at a point, Adriana. You know, I didn't know what this movie was about at all, right? 
So I'm at the point in the movie where I'm thinking, maybe I'm missing something. Like, what is even happening? But I do feel like something is going to happen. And then then the the big reveal of, you know, uh, uh, he's writing the letter to the family, right? And I was like, oh, wow. I was waiting for something to start sort of occurring and I wasn't expecting something like this to start occurring. And right. then the movie kind of maintains the same tone as it's shifted gears yeah. from the banality of everyday life to suicide slash murder. <laughs> it's uh it's to still about the fish. same vibe. Yeah, yeah like the, but there's yeah. this there's this there's this tension yes. that yes. ever so slowly builds. Yes. As the film progresses, where the, it's just like this feeling of dread in the pit of your stomach. Well, where I think you that's can feel what that this is up, leading somewhere. Well, that's what was ramping up, honestly, my sense of frustration. Like I was starting to be like, okay, where uh, the movie is holding attention in it that I don't understand. Like, where are we going with this? And then when it reveals it, I'm like, oh god damn it! And, and then it just <laughs> continues on. And really, the only. The only moment to me that felt like real spectacle, right, was the very moment that Josh just alluded to when the fish die. That that yes. fish moment is the one moment where I'm like, oh my god! I'm like, and the camera just keeps cutting from one yes, fish flapping yes. around to another, oh and it just god. keeps happening. That, it's like, like it's a the, cycle that repeats several times, and you know, by the end of the, the cycle, perfect. every fish is basically dead, and it's yeah. it. It's really brutal. It's like the perfect anatomy of this movie, though, right? Like, it's a fish tank. It's like this thing that's in their house for them right. to, like, care for and is a thing. But then, like, ultimately it's the undoing of that thing that is, like, the perfect metaphor for this whole family and their Yeah, they're in an existential fish tank. Well, yeah, and it, it seemed like... It seemed like one of the things I thought about, and maybe, maybe I'm wrong in this, but one of the things I thought about was that they're destroying their lives, they're destroying all their stuff, you know, they're they're going to end themselves. Um, it doesn't necessarily necessitate the fish dying, right? Like, it, it is, it feels like a moment of excess. Like, everything they're doing might be unnecessary. Like, they maybe don't need to break everything they own. But it's methodical, right? You know, although when they were- Well, it's like they, were, they want to erase every- Every piece of evidence that they ever existed. Right. But but then do the fish have to die? Like, it's the only moment, I mean, I guess the ending, the ultimate ending, in a way, feels harsh. But something about those fish felt cruel in a different way to me. I don't know. Maybe I'm alone. But that's just, I just thought, no, and, and I didn't feel bad for the fish. I, sensation. I felt bad for the daughter, right? Like, the whole yeah. time I'm like, I don't know if I buy that this little girl is meant to be in this situation and that, but the one moment where I see her just feeling utterly broken is when she is seeing those fish that like, that was a step too far. That's the only example in the entire movie where a sense of magnanimity and connection happens between any of the characters, the other connection, the connector being the fish. Right. Like the rest yeah. of the movie is strangely pallid. Like, yeah, everybody is almost indifferent to each other. Even the scenes on like the father is having sex with the mom, like even the scenes when the mom slaps the kid for pretending that she's being blind. Like there's so many like things that happen, but 
that's the only sequence in the movie when like right before it, the father says to the daughter, like put on your sturdy shoes, you know, and then that happens. And it's the only scene where there is this sense of connectedness. Yeah. And it's worth pointing out that, um, the reason the daughter was pretending she was blind is because, uh, you know, as the mother finds she out, she wanted to feel loved. Yeah, yeah. She <laughs> she wanted the attention. She finds, of her parents. yeah, the mother finds a newspaper clipping in her daughter's bedroom about a child who goes blind after a terrible car accident and how it brought the family closer together and that there had never been as much love between these family members as there was after the accident. So this, so she decided that she was going to pretend to be blind so that her mother would show her love and affection. Ugh. It's so grim. It, yeah. It, that, it was a, it was a lot to get through. I'm going to be honest with you, Adriana is a lot. Like not even given my current state of disrepair. Like it's just a lot of movie to be like, to go from where we were yeah. at the beginning and being like, why are we watching this car getting washed? To like, why is well, the girl gonna die? Well, in the car washing <laughs> scene, when the mom loses it in the car wash, it starts right? crying in the car wash. Yeah. Holy shit. And that's something we don't know exactly why she's crying. And we don't actually know any particulars as far as why this family does what they, they eventually do. We're left to just draw our own conclusions, and that's something I like about Hanukkah. He doesn't ever kind of let you off easy. Right. Mm. Well, and I think he, I mean, based upon uh, my experience watching funny games, I think he's also interested in the act of voyeurism within cinema itself. You know, like... The, yeah, the, and, the, and, and the viewer becoming complicit in... Right. Hmm. Well, I guess that's that's more like he doesn't really start to get into that with this film, but in in later films, certainly he's interested in, you know, the viewer becoming complicit in the violence. Well, I that think is on it's screen. I think it's inherent though in the idea of on paper, this is an edge lord movie. This is a movie about a family who kills themselves, and you could film it. There's an entire melodramatic caricature way to film. You know what I mean? Like take right. a second, Adrian, and consider Eli Roth's remake of this movie. Oh right? God. Why would you do that to me? <laughs> because it is the only way to highlight how the decision to not do that is actually much more intentional yes. than anything Eli Roth or Rob Zombie or any of these hack hard records. And also I find do. it much more punishing and challenging yes. than one hundred percent. Anything those filmmakers can muster. Even mm. the decision that the way that they end their lives is so uh, clinical. It's gross, but it's clinical. It's not you know no one's shooting themselves. You know, right? That's that's a very intentional. Dis- you know, everything about they- this is not that spectacle that that the story on paper suggests. You know, if you just tell someone like, yeah, it's a movie of family, they kill themselves. Someone's, you know, they're expecting something else. They're expecting something in a different mode than how this film functions. Mm. At least something more violent than the way this movie plays out. Or dark or dramatic or, again, 
I think as Adrian already said, explanatory. He's uh, there's no interest in him uh, unraveling this movie for you. You know, I mean, uh, maybe there maybe people watch this movie and they're like, "Well, I saw signs that there was something going." There's for me no evidence of where this movie is going if you don't know where it's going. You know, th- there's a sense Other of tension. Other than they, the family seems very right emotionally distant and. Like there's clearly something going on, but I, I I don't think you can really predict exactly where things are headed, you know, until that the third part of the film where, you know, there's a voiceover where the father is, yes. reading. you know, he's he's reading what he is writing out to his parents. And it gets to the part about how they that he and his wife have been really struggling with this decision of whether or not to take their daughter with them when they yeah. make their big move and then he's and then he says there's like the whammy line where he says well we just you know we just i'm paraphrasing here but you know we decided that we were going to take her because we talked to her about death and she said that she wasn't afraid of death and that's when you're like oh that's where this is going I, I think there's a I actually even before that, as he starts the letter, started to get a sense of, uh oh, uh oh, where are we going here? <laughs> I mean, sure, because they're closing their bank accounts and they're like yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the yeah, wife yeah. steps away from her job. But he you know, he does say we're moving to Australia. So there is still this like possibility Hope, that it may actually just be as it appears, but that but it isn't until he says yeah. Oh my She's God. not afraid of death that it's, we know for sure that it, and, they're and not, they're not moving anywhere. No. Well, and here's the brief connection I'll make to breaking the waves. It's actually inspired by a trip to church, right? They're at church and there's some line in a song about how it would be great to die. Cause then you could be with God and right. she's interested in that. She, she likes their daughter is interested in that. And that got them talking about death as if, <laughs> As if, like, why would you even put that in? Like, the, that line specifically is what a grandparent will read again and again thinking, oh, no. <laughs> is this somehow, like, like literally, it literally reads like, yeah, yeah. Well, well, she got interested in death when you took her to church. She heard all that Jesus stuff. And now she's seems pretty interested to die with right, us. So I guess we're going to do that. for the rest yeah. of their lives. Yeah, it's so fucked. Yeah. <laughs> uh. I'm sorry to be Ugh. laughing right now, but I, this is the sort of thing I, you know, this is the sort of way that this movie functions for people, and I want to make that clear. What what we're trying to get at is that the way that it is portraying this intense, horrific subject, it's so fucking ballsy. It's so self assured. It's such a crazy idea to do for your first fucking feature length film. Yeah. That like, yeah. the, I'm not laughing at the idea that this family is dead. That's not funny. I'm laughing at the idea that the director did it this way and it works and it's actually an amazing movie. I don't know that I would be stoked to put it on again for like my wife. You know, I was, I'm not like, Suze, we got to watch something, right? Are you, are you still awake? You awake? <laughs> you got for Let's you, do Suze. this. I, you know, but I do think it's a movie I will eventually return to even if it's a, a really demanding watch for the craft of it. Like, I, I'm not surprised yeah. that people saw this movie and were like, oh, this guy's a fucking powerhouse. He's, whatever he does next is going to be really good because it's 
an unbelievable achievement. It's not a pleasant watch. I don't even know if I could recommend it to everybody listening. I mean, I'm assuming everyone listening already watched it. I would say you have to know that the person is into a particular kind of experience watching movies. Or if they are a fan of his films and they haven't seen it, then I would not hesitate to recommend it. But it's definitely not a movie you can just tell anybody, hey, you should check this out. Well, not I think that kind of movie. Well, I think there are people, and I, Adriana, you probably know some folks like this, but there are people who the only uh, Hanukkah movie they've seen is Funny Games, right? Yeah. And if you're unfamiliar with his other films and you see Funny Games, you might come away from that thinking that he is a dickhead. I've definitely <laughs> read people who are super bummed on that movie because they read it as like, oh, he's just mad at me because I like violence. You know? Yeah, there are people who think he is overly didactic. Right. Which I and don't know that I agree with that, but. I mean, I, I I don't know that Funny Games works entirely for me, having watched both versions, especially the American one. I'm not sure. I, I'm just not sure what I think about it, you know? And I haven't been willing to go back to it to, like, decide. Uh, however, I probably will at some point because I, I do think there's something there that I'm still kind of, like, wrestling with a little bit but i do think seeing this movie deepens my understanding of the sort of filmmaker he is i mean it, it also helps that i've seen a couple of his other movies too um uh but i think if you've only seen funny games and you wrote him off as a director because of funny games i think you, i think seeing his other films will help people appreciate maybe what was going on in that movie i don't know i don't know if you feel that way too no i totally agree so, but I know I know some people who really hate that movie, which you know, I guess I kind of understand. I just don't know that it's. I don't know that they're being fair. They're probably just. Uh, I don't know. I'm not going to psychoanalyze people who didn't like funny games, but you know, <laughs> uh, uh, that wouldn't be fair of me. Um, the remake thereof. What you know? What if someone says you know, having not you know, I'm sure there are some people listening who didn't do take our advice. And they're just listening to us talk about this movie, which I don't think is a necessarily a bad thing to do per se. What if they are utterly bummed from what we're describing? Like, let's say someone said to you, Adriana, like, well, that just sounds horrible. Why would I watch that? I, I, I don't think we need to convince anyone. Like, I don't need you to make a case. But if you wanted to say something right. like, well, this is why I think it's valuable. What would you say to somebody just to sort of like say like, well, this is what this is what about it seems worthwhile to me. Well, I mean. Are you talking in terms of like, you know, some people have a difficult time wrapping their heads around the fact that some people can enjoy watching upsetting films or or films that are very difficult emotionally? I think think to some some extent, but I also think um, this movie's different too in the sense of... uh, when I say it's avoiding spectacle, I also think, though I find it very engaging, it's not as interested in just being salacious entertainment as like, a, you know what I mean? Like, it's not just people who are unwilling to suffer in a film uh, who might not want to watch this movie. I think there are people, or let me put it another way. It's not just people who would be like, oh, that sounds um, unpleasant. 
Uh, there are people who might enjoy something that is unpleasant for funsies, but this movie is not for funsies. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Like, yeah. or anyone who might be confused when, when we're like, yeah, man, this is a really amazing movie. It really made me hurt. <laughs> I don't know. I don't right. know what I'm, I, it really I, I mean, does not like me. <laughs> well, um, to that point, I mean, you, you have something you say a lot, Liam, that I really relate to, which is that, you know, you love movies that don't love you back. And I'm very much in the same boat. And, you know, I love, I love a good, like, popcorn movie, a big action blockbuster, or like a, a feel good movie. You know, Liam, I know like, we both have this in common as well, where we are like, total suckers for really sappy emotionally oh, yeah. manipulative yes. feel good films. Fuck yes. Yeah. I eat that shit up. Uh you know, so you know, I like I like the like the Marvel movies and so forth. Um so you know, I can appreciate just wanting to be entertained by a film, but more often than not the the movies that really make me feel deeply and that make me feel connected to my own humanity are are the movies that are absolutely punishing t- to watch like the you know the the in a glass cages uh oh yeah <laughs> uh Jeez. you know st- stuff st- stuff that you know it's not it's not an easy sit and um yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, I mean, and this is an extremely subjective thing. Like, I, I do not expect everybody else to have that, ex, that experience or that relationship to movies. Um, but, that, but, but that would be my response as to why, to what I get out of it. Yeah. Um, but then as, as just, as far as like why it's a good film, I mean, I don't, I, we've talked a lot about that. I think we've covered a lot of the bases. I mean, it's incredibly well-made. It's an extremely confident film from a first time feature film director. I mean, this was, this was his first feature film. That is crazy to me. Uh, He just seems already so fully formed as an artist and, and, and like his, his, his point of view as a filmmaker. And, uh, I think, the the cinematography in this movie too like the 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 way the camera frames certain things like the close-ups on the hands and just the the uh emphasis put on like the mundane everyday details of their lives uh i i i just think that um there's a tremendous amount of of artistry involved in how this film was made Right. And yeah, it's also a tonal masterclass. It is. Yeah. And it's, it's just it's so an amazing exercise. It's really, it's also like, let me, how should I put this? You could spend a lot of time trying to pick it apart and analyze it. And like, it, it's very rich in that way. And that is always a plus for me. Like if I, if I spend hours pondering a movie that that I had seen uh you know that makes it worthwhile hmm. Hmm. I agree I agree with that as well I it's it's 
I feel like there's a lot more to say about it. I want to make sure we have yeah. time for breaking the waves. But the transition I'm going to make is it's also one of the few movies I've seen about uh, about this kind of dark uh, thing that I think kind of avoids the concept of sacrifice altogether. Like we, we're about to talk about breaking the waves, which I think is about the idea of sacrifice. And, uh, you know, that's not what this movie is about. I think sometimes when you, uh, if I were to just say to someone like, yeah, it's a family and they end their lives. One of the contexts for which we understand that is some deep cause or a deep sadness or a, you know what I mean? Like the film avoids that concept altogether, which actually makes it that much more challenging as an audience to be like, okay, why is this happening? Like, what is happening right now? And it it never feels like the film is failing you. Like, it never feels like, well, fuck you, movie, for not explaining it to me. No, it never, at least for me, maybe, uh, obviously, some people are going to have a different reaction. But for me, I always felt like it's for me to ponder. That's the point of, the, that's part of the point of what we're going through here. It's for me to think about how they got to this situation and not to... um look for something easy in the film itself per se, but to sort of ponder it. I don't know. I don't know if you feel the same way, Adriana, but that was, that was what yeah, I was left thinking. And, but also I, it feels very real to me in the sense that yeah. oftentimes when tragic events, like, uh, you know, an entire family dying by suicide, uh, when, when, when tragic events like that occur, um, they very often seem to to come from out of nowhere, and there is no really easy explanation as to why they occur. Yeah, you just kind of have to deal with that. And the the very end, like the postscript, sort of leads into that in the in the idea that it suggests that this is a true story, and that the family could never accept what really happened. You know what I mean? Right it's a reminder that our feeling is what people would feel anyway, that it's, it's a mystery. And, you know, maybe that is actually in a sense what makes it similar to breaking the waves, but we, we should transition. I, I just want to say thank you for suggesting this movie. Cause I don't know when I was going to make time for it. And though it was a heavy carry, <laughs> I'm really glad that I saw it. <laughs> well, First time watch. First time watch. And also I just want to say for the listeners, it is now 10 54, p.m. Eastern. Uh, so if I'm uh, already getting kind of rambly and not making sense, I apologize, but it's only going to get worse. I know. I This has been, a, this is actually a long episode, but that, I think that's okay. Um, so breaking the waves. Uh, man, there's so much to say there's right so much now. Here. There's so much. If, if the seventh continent is a catastrophe, Breaking the waves is just grim certainty. Yeah. That's the difference in these two movies to me. And, that like, and also like, no, continue. Sorry. No, go no, ahead. no, I'm just saying. Oh, yeah, I, was just, I was just going to say, I have very different emotional responses to these two films. Yeah. Like the seven yeah, continent leaves me feeling really emotionally hollowed out by the yes. end. Yes. Yes. Whereas, Watching Breaking the Waves, I think I felt every emotion there is uh, at different points. Um, and I actually, I forgot how angry it makes me. Yeah, uh, yeah. Particular, particularly with regards to how different, how the, how 
the characters treat Bess. Yeah. Especially Which I'm the sure we'll get into. Character, the scene where she's knocking on the door while the kids are throwing rocks at her and the mom oh, doesn't God. let her into the house. That part made me almost eat an entire pillow. I mean, yeah. like not what? like a pillow of food either, like a pillow that you sleep on. I mean, we'll get into this in more detail, but I think the, the one of the things that he does very well, right? Like one of the questions about sacrifice um, that people would have, and, and by this I don't just mean uh, in a theological sense, i.e. like Christian specifically, but I think anyone thinking about the idea of sacrifice is um, how do we know someone's motives are pure? Like people make decisions to do something like this for all kinds of reasons. And so, uh, you know, this movie very explicitly wants us to think of Jesus, right? Bess is literally on a passion walk. You know, she's, she's rejected by everyone she loves. She's stoned. And then she goes and chooses death because she, you know, thinks it will save, save Jan, you know? And um, and we're meant to think of that story, even though, you know, I don't think she's a direct analog for Christ. We should have that on our minds while we're while we're watching it. And um, one of the things that we could think, right, is that she might be making the decision to sacrifice for mixed motives, because there are all kinds of reasons people make decisions like that, whether that's for glory or out of uh, 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 a sense of attachment or, you know, th there's all these sort of questions about that. And he goes out of his way to make it really clear. There's no reason for her to go back to that ship at all. Like she's been rejected by everyone. She has nothing to, to prove to anyone at this point, really. She goes back because she thinks it's going to help him. And in the end, isn't given the satisfaction of knowing if it will work or not. Whether or not it well, and also she feels before, guilty wait, because wait, 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 yeah. she, she feels responsible for what happened to him. Yeah, yeah. Before we get to all this bits, though, who wants to give a synopsis of this movie? Oh, not man. me. I will do it for y'all. <laughs> uh, so uh, I'll start with a synopsis, then talk a little bit about, about him because I think it relates to the movie. Uh, so Breaking the Waves is a story set in the, in the Hebrides, Hebrides? Uh, uh, basically extreme Hebrides. Hebrides. Thank you. Extreme North Scotland uh, on, uh, on which there are still some pretty regressive religious communities. And uh, Bess uh, played by Emily Watson is a character who is um, in some sense uh, different than the people around her. Uh, people in the film use language to question her intelligence, to question her, mental capacity to question her sanity, like all this stuff, it, it, whatever it is, she's different than everyone around her. And uh, we open with her in front of this council of elders in a scene that is almost a literal shot for shot recreation of the uh, inquisition of Joan of Arc in the passion of Joan of Arc uh, in, in such a way that it is uncanny how much he recreates that scene. Um, and basically, uh, she's fallen in love and she wants to get married. Uh, her, her, uh, uh, husband to be Jan is an outsider to the community, but because it seems that they don't really know who else would marry her, they let this thing go ahead, even though there's a, a deep suspicion in this closed up community about everything from the outside. Um, she, uh, is very connected to Jan, um, 
he comes from a very different world than she does. Uh, we're showing a lot of scenes of them loving each other and of her discovering uh, eroticism and sexuality with him. And uh, as he goes to leave, she basically can't handle him not being with her. She uh, values him uh, 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 more than her own life, it seems, and um, wishes uh, and prays for him to come home to the extent that when uh, one of his friends comes home because he's injured, it, she basically wishes for him to get injured. And he is, uh, but it is far more severe. And he is left uh, uh, paralyzed and comes home and, and things get very dark. Um, and she goes through uh, a whole series of uh, uh, horrible situations because Jan suggests that she should go out and find a lover and that hearing about her experiences will heal him. Um, I, you know, I don't know if that's... I just want to interject and say that he doesn't merely suggest it. He, he tells her she yeah. needs to do this or he will die. Yes. Um, and it's, you know, is he just sick? Is he fucked up in the head? Does he think that this will cause her to leave him and choose someone else? It's, it's never made clear per se, but... Whatever it is that he he's thinking, she does this thing um, in in more and more ways uh, as the community around here is you know infantilizing her more and more. Uh, people want to help her, but everyone slowly becomes untrustworthy and and paternalistic in a very awful way. Uh, eventually, she's rejected by her community. Uh, and in a in a horrifying scene, she she goes to uh, sleep with some sailors, and uh, she's assaulted uh, specifically by uh, a man at, under the direction of Udo Kier, and then by Udo Kier himself. Um, she comes back to to total rejection. Uh, uh, she has been uh, Jan has been convinced to have her committed. Um, her everyone thinks that she's gone astray. She's literally stoned by horrible children after she's rejected by the church. Who keeps uh, yelling tart at her. Yes. Who's a tart yeah, yeah. is what they say. It's terrible. That's right. I want Ugh. each of those kids to die. It's it's so horrifying. It's and, so brutal. It's so brutal. Yeah. Uh, finally, um, she decides that it, she needs to... Um, go back to the boat and give her life to save, to save Jan, that this is the act that her yeah, death. She hears that Jan is going to die. Yes. And she, and that that's enough to give her the final resolve to be like, well, I'm going to go back to that boat where Udo Kier is and we're going to save Jan. And this is what we got to do. Yeah. And man, woof. yeah. My experience with this movie was exactly this. Ready? It was like, Oh, they're happy. A bummer, uh, a bummer, a bummer. What's Udo Kier doing here? And finish. Like, that's how that movie played out for me at 5.30 this morning for two hours and 39 minutes. Well, it's important. We have to go to the very end because this is an important part for interpretation of the whole film. Uh, Jan knows that they're going to, when they bury her, consign her to hell. So he steals her body, takes her out to the ocean, and gives her a burial at sea. And then he's awoken to church bells. Now, uh, the detail I should have given early on is that her church doesn't believe in walking. Her church doesn't believe in music. And so the church has no bells and they, and they don't 
they they certainly don't approve of her when she says that the thing that the outsiders have brought is their music because they're very against music and celebration and you know the rights of women. These are all things they don't trust, right? Yeah. Uh, so women are not allowed to talk in this church. Yeah. And when she does talk at the end, they cast her out. Oh my God! Yeah, that she scene questions. Is so she, she questions their faith and 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 how they could love a word and all this is. It's actually pretty theologically intense there at the end. And then, uh, you know, Jan is of course now it, uh, almost uh, as one would predict has been healed uh, by her sacrifice. Probably not, but that's what yeah. has happened. And, uh, yeah, the and sensation then we have these is bells. that there's a faith healing that's occurred, right? Yeah. There's this, well, because like, she sense asked that, her like, friend you know to pray for him, like shortly before yeah. she goes back to the boat. Yeah. Yeah. And there's so so, you know, I'm assuming people listening know something about Lars von Trier. He's a pretty controversial director. He's done a lot of movies recently that like people have very strong opinions about. Um, when he made this film, uh, one of the things to to know about him is that he was raised by pretty radical leftist uh, secularists. Uh, he was raised in a, a secular Jewish household. And uh, as an adult, he converted to Catholicism, um, as he said, as a way to sort of seek authority and tradition and ceremony. And a lot of things that people find very frustrating with the Catholic Church was some of what attracted him, that, that feeling of being part of this tradition. Um, eventually he, uh, was not in good standing with the church cause he got divorced, um, which, you know, was still something people cared about, I guess. Uh, but he maintained a religious life for a long time, even at a certain point admitting he wasn't sure if he believed in it anymore, but he just found it comforting to participate. Now, from what I understand, I think currently he's no longer even participating in church, but at least he was going to church when this film was made. Um, and, and there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of criticism of the faith, uh, of the church rather, while still having religious right. themes, right? That, that there's a skepticism about religion while still suggesting that maybe something is going on. Um, it, you know, in interviews, he's suggested, uh, that, um, that while every everyone is motivated in the film to some extent by good, that uh, everyone gets it wrong. Or their wrong. idea of good. Yeah, but that everyone is getting it wrong. That like that's the true motivation. Everyone thinks they're doing something that's good, you know, in the film, but everyone is getting it wrong. And I think we're supposed to think that about about Bess too. I don't think we're supposed to think that when Bess is talking to herself that that's God. I think just in, in the way he's talked about the film, I don't think that's the case. But we have those bells, man. There are miracle bells in the sky at the end. And I don't think, you know, I asked this on Twitter if people thought that was ironic. And I, I have to agree. I don't think it is ironic. I think we're supposed to no, think something is happening there. And I, and I God's bells are ringing there for? Yeah, man. I think that's a fucking literal <laughs> thing that's happening right now in the movie, that that is actually mm -hmm. happening. Um, which it's, I, I was wondering if you were going to think that was crazy, but I, you know, and to be fair, he's, he said before in every movie, I try to push the boundaries of what is possible. And those bells are an example of me pushing what is possible, but it's also worth and noting the, the movie has multiple references to Carl Theodore Dreyer and famously Dreyer in Ordet brings a girl back to life. Now for us, I'm sure why, I don't know if you guys have seen Ordet, you know, 
she thinks she's dead. She comes alive, whatever. We all know it's not a thing, but like when that movie came out, dude, that was a big deal. Actually. I mean, I've had people, you know, you guys know my stepdad, George, well, Adrian, you've never met him. Josh has, you know, uh, big deal, not religious person, big deal. Atheist dude definitely said the only religious experience he's ever had was watching or He's like, when she comes to life at the end, that's the closest I've ever had to a religious experience. And I was like, holy fuck. But he's not alone. That's how a lot of people feel about that movie. Like that is an important film. And, and, uh, Dreyer similarly was a, was a humanist when it came to religion in the sense that he didn't trust the church, but he thought that there was something going on in people's faith. Not necessarily that there was a God, but there was something going on there. Right. Um, and that's what he was getting at is portraying the sacred. Uh, I think in this movie, he, you know, Von Trier is trying to portray the sacred. Now, I don't know if I feel comfortable with the ways he chooses to do that, but I do think that that's what's going on here. And I think that that's really interesting. Uh, Even if (laughs) this is a fucking hard movie to watch, you know, a a really intense movie to watch. Um, It is. One one thing you didn't mention, just to add to like the magical realism element uh, and, you know, I think it's evidence and support of the sincere reading of the bells at the end. But um, on on that uh, ship that Jan is on at the end of the film with his oil rig buddies, you know, when he's woken up, uh, he they wake him up to point out it, it isn't the bells. The bells don't sound until later. The reason they wake him up is because Bess's body has suddenly become undetectable on the sonar on the on the ship. It's like her body just disappeared from the ocean. Mm-hmm. And then that is when suddenly they start hearing the bells and they all walk out onto... Um, the rig. Yeah, and they're looking up at the sky and they, they hear the bell. So it's like she ascended. I mean, yeah. I... Whew. Oh man, but I, it's I've, a lot. I've, I've made this There's point so much. We what's funny is we've talked about this a little bit before on this podcast, Josh, a long time ago. But it, mm. you know, I was just making the point at the time that uh, you know, uh, uh, if people follow me on Twitter, I, I posted a lecture by a professor at Princeton University named Jeffrey Stout, where he talked about this film. And at one point in the lecture, he suggests that you know. There is a there is a trilogy that Von Trier has uh, called uh, oh what's it called the Golden Heart trilogy. The Golden Heart trilogy, yeah. yeah so that would it's be this film, The Idiots, and Dancer in the Dark. Right, and 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 so those those are three movies focused on a certain kind of female suffering, let's say. Yeah, but, female martyrdom. Yeah, uh, but he would suggest that the actual trilogy is Breaking the Waves, Dancer in the Dark, and Dogville. Uh, yeah, because he suggests that these are th- three ways that Von Trier thinks about faith. So in Breaking the Waves, there's this horrible suffering. There's this evil that Bess goes through. But there's the bells that even if she was misguided, her love is so pure that something miraculous happens at the end. And, you know, keep in mind something that, you know, a friend, of, <clears throat> excuse me, friend of the show, Justin Ordell pointed out that the idiots is actually his first dog may movie, but you know, bringing the waves came out in 95. He signed the dog may thing in 93. So he 
could have, if he wanted to, make Breaking the Waves a, a dogma film. And instead, he doesn't, right? There there are some things like the handheld aspect of it that kind of represents that. But, you know, there's the CGI of all the title sequences. Those are all computer-generated images. Uh, the helicopter yeah, in that first like one is CGI. In and- dubbed in music. And then those bells are giant CGI bells. I think there's something about that. Then uh, Dancer in the Dark uh, is uh, his feeling of... Uh, a little bit more realism. Dance in the Dark is a movie about faith and about seeing the world with love, but we're also given this idea that, like, well, she just dies. You know, there's no bells for for Bjork's character, right? And then Dogville is his utter doubt, right? Because in Dogville, we have a character named Grace who chooses death for all the people who wronged her, right? Like, literally, you could see it as if Grace is actually Jesus. If Jesus right before the cross went, nah, fuck it. Just kill everybody. <laughs> and so I've like, actually never seen Dogville. I've never seen oh. Dogville or the idiots. Yeah. Oh man. Sorry sure. to, sorry to ruin Dogville for you, but uh, it's pretty similar to breaking the waves in the sense that everyone <laughs> is terrible to Nicole Kidman. Uh, and then instead of, uh, instead of as grace Josh showing here. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's true, actually. <laughs> and it, it, as a character named Grace, instead of showing them Grace, she has everyone murdered. Oh, that rascal okay. Yvonne Trier. I mean, li- literally, <laughs> she, she, she argues for them, for these people, that even though they've done nothing but horribly abuse her the whole film, that they're not so bad to her father, who's a powerful gangster, and the, her father says, you only forgive people because you don't believe they're capable of things. You don't believe in people. If you believed in people, you'd expect more of them. And then she finds that very compelling, and they kill everyone. <laughs> and, uh, wow. Uh, yeah. Uh, and so, like, I, you know, I, I think he's probably right that that even if Von Trier doesn't think of them as a triptych, they are kind of three movies that deal with ideas of faith. But with this movie, I, I do think the bells are sincere in some way. Um, the thing I wanted to talk a little bit about, and I know Adriana, you've thought about this too, is, um, you know, this movie has, I think intentionally some feminist themes with best standing up to this patriarchal community and, you know, demanding that their faith is incomplete because of, uh, and her friend as well, challenging their authority. On the other hand, it's a film that functions on a female martyrdom that has become a theme through a lot of his movies, you know, not just the three that we are talking about where it comes up a good deal. And so uh, I don't know. I I, I don't know how any of us feel. I don't know if anyone wants to take that on or if we would just want to admit it's there and move on. But I think it's worth (laughs) talking about a little bit if anyone has anything to say. No. Sorry to open that can of worms, but yeah, I mean, I don't. Um, it's it's like kind of awkward to say this because you know sometimes like a lot of people, I have this impulse to want to always have an answer for things. Sure. Or that you know it, sometimes it's like easy to succumb to this idea that there is something weak about admitting that you don't really know. But I mean. That's kind of what I have to do here. I, I don't have um, a definitive answer on this. It's something that I go back and forth on a lot um, when I revisit his films. Um, I think 
if you look at any of these films individually, I think it becomes a bit more of a challenge to try to to argue that, you know, uh, his that that he is a misogynist or that that the film in question is misogynistic just because a female character has terrible things happen to her. But as you pointed out, this is a recurring theme in his work. And if you look at Breaking the Waves uh, next to Dogville and Dogville next to Dancer in the Dark and Dancer in the Dark next to Antichrist and Antichrist next to Melancholia and Melancholia next to Nymphomaniac. And it, 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 be, it becomes harder and harder to try to defend. Um, but I think, I, I, I feel this way at least, that, you know, even, even if we say, okay, that these films have a misogynistic element to them, that doesn't mean that, you know, we are bad for relating to these films or connecting with them or enjoying them on some some level i think it's completely possible to appreciate a lot of what he is doing while also you know critiquing um and so yeah i mean i don't i don't really i don't have a definitive answer um i mean i think it's worth admitting that even if he is in some ways playing into um a certain kind of trope of suffering, right? That his yeah, you films- should go into that, like, because before we recorded, you articulated this really well about right. like what exactly it is that yeah, he's doing so, and why it is problematic potentially. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to. Let me just say to everybody, right? I don't want to burden this too much because, unlike a lot of times when we talk about movies, I have a lot of info about Lars von Trier because it's something I cared about during grad school. Um, again, because of this specific professor and the ways that he talked about the movie. So, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to burden this too much in a way that some of our other discussions aren't, but I think it is still interesting to acknowledge that Lars von Trier has named like explicitly that for him narratively, female suffering is closer to the suffering of Christ than male suffering. And that, in fact, if he were trying to tell these stories, because he's well aware of the accusations that he is being misogynist, like he's not living in a vacuum. He knows that this is a thing. It's been a thing since, you know, since breaking the waves. And his feeling is, look, obviously, I don't think only women can suffer in a pure way because I believe in Christ and Christ is a dude. Uh However, narratively, as an artist, I just find the suffering of women more compelling because I believe it more. I don't think men, he's literally said, I don't think men are capable of living up to their ideology that way, the way that women can. That women are more capable of actually following through ideologically to suffer for something they believe in. That's, right, which is kind of sexist, like, but in a different, in a right. way yes. that like people wouldn't typically expect because it is, it is this kind of gender essentialism. And it, and it also, by the way, for a guy who has read the, the thing to keep in mind with Lars von Trier is like when we're talking about his movies and we apply theory, that's not out of line. Lars von Trier has read, you know, European philosophers, you know what I mean? Like that's part of what's on his mind. And he's specifically ignoring, I think the insight of uh, Lusa Rigore that Christ is also a feminized figure in in theology, in history, um, this idea of the ultra masculine Christ who suffers through his sh- 
you know, deep strength is a very modernized thing that that's not actually the history that the, 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 the ways that people conceptualize, uh, of Christ's suffering has tended to be that the suffering is inflicted by God, the, the sort of, uh, uh, phallic symbol and Christ is the in the receiver is feminized. And, you know, that's also present in religious writing in the, in the writings of, uh, of mystics who find themselves in uh, erotic connection with Christ through meditation and prayer. Uh, that's not me trying to be gross guys. That's a real theological thing that I've read about that mystics find themselves in erotic union with Christ and his, suffering. that's actually it. That ties into Benedetta because that idea gets explored in Benedetta yep. in a big yep. way. Yep. And so I think simply saying, well, you know, Jesus suffered. So I, I obviously I think men can suffer is like, and, and again, I'm saying a specific kind of suffering here. Part, part of the thing is that I think, um, though I don't think you need a theology degree to understand this movie at all. I do think one of the ways to pull apart this movie is to talk about sacrifice and what we don't talk about, but I've talked about in the show before is that even people in Western societies who aren't religious at all tend to conceive of sacrifice in ways that are utterly determined by the history of the Christian church. And in fact, that's part of why I think this movie is still compelling because I think there are tons of people who are unaware of Catholicism or Von Trier's religiosity or the ways that this movie reflects upon, like there are literal moments of this film that feel to me like uh, recreating the the passion of the Christ in some way, you know, mm. and uh, not the not the Mel Gibson movie. I mean the the passion in the in the sense of the ch- history of the church. Um, there are literal moments in the movie recreating it. You don't need to know that to connect with the movie because our culture has a concept of sacrifice, right? Our culture has an idea that you could go and suffer, even if on an intellectual level, most people watching the movie are thinking that Bess is making a wrong decision, that she is misinformed, yeah. that what she's doing is not correct. We understand why she would do it. It is a compelling idea. And I think that is the ghost of uh, of good or bad theology haunting us. I'd say mostly bad because I don't think it's a correct understanding uh, of of what's going on in scripture. But, you know, that's just my vibe. It's still the history that we're living with in, in, a, in a thing like this where, you know, people see it and they get this idea that she would – think maybe my suffering, maybe my sacrifice will buy something, will win something, will move the world in some way, you know? Um, I think that's worth thinking about because I think that in some ways we convince ourselves that sacrifice as an idea is no longer culturally relevant. And I don't think that's true. I, I, I think if you really examine some of the propaganda that sells people on serving in the military. If we think about um, our expectations on people who've done wrong and, and what they owe the world, if we think about how we conceive of what people are doing, you know, even some of the ways that we talk about victims of state violence, theories and ideas of sacrifice come in all the time, you know? Uh, and I don't know that that's all bad, but some of it's bad. Some of it's very bad, and I think that's partly what's at work in this movie. And 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 let me be clear: I'm not saying it's coming in unproblematized. I think Von Trier is trying to to deal with it. And one of the things I said before we started recording that I want to bring up now is: I think the scene with Udo. It's important to know that we don't see Bess get killed. 
We know she's killed, yeah. but we don't see it. Yeah. The thing we see is her when she's first assaulted. And it seems really clear to me that the Udo Kier character is meant to implicate both Lars von Trier and us, the audience. It's asking the question, do we need to see this thing? Like, are we ourselves sadistic voyeurs for needing to see the suffering to understand the sacrifice? Does that make right. sense? And that's that's kind of yeah. that's a very Hanukkah move. Actually, yes, now yes, it is. It. I think that's actually the connection between these two movies. Honestly, like, is, right. is I think you did make that point earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I probably did. Sorry, it's a long episode. <laughs> it's getting late, guys. Come on. Um, I, again, I'm talking too much. I want to let you guys talk some more about the movie because it's not just about the th- the. Let's not even say theology. It's not even just about the philosophy or religiosity of the film. It's also the film itself, which like I love the graininess of it. I love yep. the I love moments. the handheld camera work. Oh yeah, and that's so, a, that's an issue. Uh, that's a point of contention for a lot of people. Uh, if if Letterbox is anything to go by. Oh, is that right? Yeah, like a lot of that people, people were upset have by a the handheld with that very kinetic camera, and oh, yeah. I fucking love it. I love that he filmed yeah, it's it. It's great. It gives the movie such an amazing energy too. Yeah, for such a grim it, story. It just there's an immersive quality to it. Yes, and yeah. that he filmed it handheld, but on CinemaScope, then ran that through digital video, and then put it back on film. Yeah. So that's why it's got that quality to it. Like he shot it, like it's the the, the film he shot it on. This thing should look like a fucking like you know, like huge sixties movie. You know what I mean? Like he shot it on this like high quality thing, and then transferred it to digital video like a jerk, and then brought it back and gave it this grainy quality. And I fucking love that. You know, I love the. It also has like a wild sepia tone to it. It has yes. like yeah. almost a brown tint to the well, entire and also- movie. Go ahead. Uh, I think I think it's also worth noting that you know the movie is divided into I think seven chapters yes. and like mm. at the start of each chapter there is this like there are these incredibly beautiful impress impressionistic panoramas uh, and yeah I don't I'm not sure exactly how that was achieved if that was hand painted or if there if that actually was like shot on film and then had some kind of like treatment done in post but yeah they're gorgeous and then each each panorama is accompanied by a different sort of classic rock song from the 70s <laughs> there's goodbye yeah. yellow brick road there so is good. Uh, life on mars life on mars is with the epilogue suzanne yeah, yeah leonard cohen um, I want I want you guys so to know good. I've talked before on this show about how sheltered I was from classic rock. There are multiple songs in this movie that this was the first time I heard the song. Wow. Really? Yeah. I literally Meanwhile, there, I'm like there's a scene where there's like three seconds of music as they're driving in the car, and immediately I'm like, Oh, that's whiskey in the jar, thin Lizzie. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't know. When I first saw this movie, I didn't know most of the music at all. So so weird. I know. I'm a weird person. Um uh yeah i the other thing i wanted to point out like the film intentionally is uninterested in continuity like and he establishes that in that first scene in that opening scene where she's being like basically interrogated about this marriage she wants to have 
almost every rule of continuity is broken on purpose. Like straight up, mm-hmm. there's a very limited, uh, uh, what do you call, uh, uh, sorry guys, my brain just died. When someone talks about the movie that they made over the movie. Like, uh, like commentary. Um, there's a very, yeah, there's a very limited commentary on the criterion channel. It's only selected scenes, but it is a commentary with Lars von Trier and his cinematographer and they point or his editor rather. And they point out that like, they literally, on purpose broke every rule of continuity in the first scene just to like frustrate the audience. And also that they, that his specific instructions to Emily Watson for that scene was that she should overact, like just exaggerate everything she was doing so that the rest of the movie would feel more palatable because <laughs> you set the audience up to have unrealistic expectations. I, I thought both of those details were very funny to me, but um, one of the things that, they were doing with this film that he's done in other movies too, is he has this editing style that also eschews continuity. There are giant time leaps in the film because he felt that what he needed to document were the emotional peaks of the film. So like what we're seeing is not everything that they filmed, right? Like the, the, you know, they filmed literally miles of footage for this thing. Just, you know, all day shoots. All we're seeing is the moments that were important to them as editors. So there are some extended scenes that maybe are quiet or not impactful, but when they edited scenes, they were editing based upon emotion, not upon establishing continuity or, you know, where is this person in the room? Like a lot of editing is about making sure that it makes sense to the audience. Like, oh, this is the next logical step. They didn't want to do that at all. They were like, okay, that's a really important moment. Cut there and we'll cut to the next thing. And like you notice it. Like there are, you know, we go from this scene where she's arguing uh, for, you know, trying to make the case of her marriage to Jan. And then we just see her really mad in her wedding dress. No explanation. Yeah. And then we cut again (laughs) to something like these cuts are just they're so fucking jarring but they work because they sort of set the tone for the rest of the movie. You know what I mean? Yeah, they set the tone as a jarring movie from the beginning, from the yeah. outset. So, of course, it's going to be jarring, and your brain doesn't really pick it up. It's just like, oh, yeah, that's just where we are. <laughs> it's, cra- it's crazy to me, too. That like, rascal Von Trier. Yeah. But, it, <laughs> I mean, in some ways, he was he he was making a point, and I think it stands. Like I, I think he's right. That audiences, I mean, his basic idea of making the movie was that audiences are smart enough to figure it out. We don't have to tell them everything. We don't have to use establishing shots so they know where we are, per se. We don't have to make sure all the dialogue connects in a logical way. They'll piece it together as long as we affect them emotionally. I think the movie achieves that. There's no, there's lots of things I'm confused about sort of ideologically in the film, you know, but I wouldn't say the plot is confusing. I wouldn't say he left something out. Like it makes sense to me what's happening. I I, I don't know. I think, I think as a, maybe as an experiment, it definitely works, but it just works as a film overall. I don't, I don't know. I, you know, Watson and Stellan Skarsgård are just so, so good. So good in this. Oh my God. And let's talk a little bit about young Stellan Skarsgård in this movie, that beautiful ponytail. Yeah. Like, Jesus, 
can't I can't realize that that's the dude in the Avengers. Like, okay, cool, yeah. cool, <laughs> or it's whatever in Thor. But um, yeah, I thought that Emily Watson is so compelling in this movie. And right? uh, Even I think she the, was an unknown her, when she was cast. Yes. And I didn't know this until I was looking at the Wikipedia page for this movie, but apparently Helena Bonham Carter was under like serious consideration for the role of Bess. And I just cannot picture no that way. No, at all. Yeah. Like, she could not Oof. carry this film the way Emily Watson does. Oh but my the gosh. way the Dorothy character interacts with Bess in this movie is so compelling as well. Like, that was like for me that was the one emotional anchor throughout this entire story that i held on to the most that it's this woman of science who like is also an outcast which then speaks to bess's character of being accepting which they say in the first place when she gives her speech during the wedding you know you accepted me as an outsider and now we've accepted another person because of your love yeah. for them like her wedding speech always sequence, makes me tear up oh, i agree i agree fucking god what the fuck but that role, that actor is so good in this movie that by the time that the devastation comes at the end where you realize that Bess is going to be institutionalized and then when, like, you know, the final scene between her and Bess, when she just cries and the mother is there, it's such a strong performance that I couldn't help but be completely affected by it. Yeah. It's so good. It's so, so good. Just on a pure film basis, devoid of all like the philosophical implication and all that stuff, just from like a, a perspective of a performance. It's so fucking good. I do want to acknowledge uh, a little bit that um, the this idea that the other thing that complicates this idea that we were talking about earlier about his possible underlying uh uh negative sort of uh let you know we said it's hard to watch each of these movies individually and feel like oh this movie is misogynist per se but there is this theme whatever uh it is worth saying that you know he's a bit of a problematic director um the the most obvious case would be actually dancer in the dark where uh, Bjork had such a bad time that she eventually got to the point where every day she would spit in his face before they started filming because she hated him so much. Um, and she's not alone. A lot of people have had very bad experiences yeah. and he on had his allegedly, sets. And allegedly assaulted her as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And from what I understand, though, I don't think there was anything quite that extreme on this set. Uh, Emily Watson didn't have a great time. And did not love everything she was asked to do in this movie per se, though I think the thing that's maybe most troubling for us as viewers, just the violence of the film, that that in it of itself wasn't necessarily a problem. But some of the extremity of how it was filmed and stuff, I think, was hard for her. Um, although it is worth noting that in the commentary, uh, he said that um, th- there was a question of, you know, was Stellan Skarsgård uh, awkward about getting naked? He was like, no, he was so stoked to be naked. Oh, that's that's another interesting thing about this movie. There's a lot of full frontal male nudity. Yep, it, there is. Yeah. yeah, and and he said that there there was more than he intended because Stella Skarsgård was so stoked on it. He just loved being naked in the movie. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny, actually. 
but Go ahead, dog. but it is it is Do worth acknowledging. Breath. Like while we're while we're struggling with, I th- I think dealing with the film ideologically is complicated. I think that some of the stuff that makes people uncomfortable with this movie, he's also addressing. Right, he's trying to struggle with it, and he might not be successful, but I don't think he's unaware. The treatment of his actors, though, those things, yeah. But the treatment of his actors on set is a different thing, and it's something that's come to light more for other directors. So I think it's worth acknowledging that while he hasn't had any of those problems recently, in fact, since he started making movies again, remember he took a break. People actually probably don't know this history, but after Boss of It All and Manderley, he like took a break from filmmaking for a long time. He had a bit of a breakdown and then he came back. And since he came back with Melancholia, the people's description of him as a director has actually gone the other direction where people feel like he's actually very supportive and patient. And so maybe whatever help he got after his breakdown changed his way of being on set. That's entirely possible. All I know is that people who worked with him before that, there's bad stories. So it's, you know, it's worth acknowledging that and, and taking that seriously, that the, there might have been some real stepping over the line there, uh, though it's hard to know exactly what was going on because there's not as many details as we might want there to be. But but it's it, it's at least something that people felt very strongly, especially Bjork. Uh, that seems to be the strongest case of him being just a monster, just a fucking monster, you know? Yeah, and who's going to be a monster to Bjork? I I, Bjork. I mean, of all the people to imagine treating poorly, poor Bjork, I mean, goddamn. Yeah, you're going to go after Bjork? Have you even heard birthdays by the sugar cubes? <laughs> Fuck. But I, I do think that's, that's, that's something to acknowledge. But, it, you know, it's also worth acknowledging that maybe – whatever was going on there, he seems to be a different director now, even though the films have not gotten less controversial. <laughs> At least his sets seem to be a safer place to be. Um, in fact, I would say the films have gotten more controversial, actually. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, man. The Jack Bill. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, it's yeah. Antichrist. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, okay. Uh, I don't know. People I will might- fight a motherfucker for Bjork, by the way. Yeah, just so you guys know. I mean, I'm not gonna lie that not that was around. that that was you know I think I've come back around to appreciating him as a director, but I was kind of out on him for a while after being pretty obsessed with his movies when I heard the stories about Bjork and that I want to point out I heard them a long time after the fact because when that movie came out, it just wasn't something I heard about. You know what I mean? Like I don't think. I was as connected to people talking about the making of a movie. I knew about Dance in the Dark before I knew about any of his other movies because Bjork was in it. I mean, I don't know if you guys had that same experience. We didn't really talk yeah. about our history with Von Trier. But for me, it all started with Von Trier with Dance in the Dark because it was like, oh, Bjork's in a movie. Guess I'm going to see it. And then seeing it, by the way, as a super Jesus-y guy at a Jesus college with my Jesus college friends and all of us being like, that was the most fucked up thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> Cause at that point it was, you know, not since, but it, it, woo. Wow. What a movie to be introduced to a director through. Yeah. Although to I be mean, fair, I also watched Kingdom, though. Oh, is that right? I, 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 yeah. I didn't know that. I 100% was like, Oh, this is the guy that made that horror TV show with the white people. Sure. Yeah. And like, and then, and then Bjork, I'm like, what is that? It was a moment. Man. Well, what's what's crazy is I actually saw the idiots shortly after seeing Dance in the Dark because 
and this is a funny story, Josh, because you know that my stepbrothers are the ones who introduced me to horror. Well, one mm. Thanksgiving, when my mom and George got back together, and George is my stepdad, for people who don't know, uh, Dan brought the idiots over, and we all watched it as a family on Thanksgiving. Wow. If people want to know what my family's <laughs> I don't, I've like. I've never seen the idiots, but oh, fuck, I know that that's bro, probably a poor idea. Bro. Yeah. Bro. I mean, it was great. But it was also, what the fuck? So, uh, yeah, <laughs> if people want to know about how my family's weird. Anyway, okay, what are some other things? Is there anything else we need to say? I, you know, we can talk about this movie probably for a lot longer. We're definitely not going to reach any conclusions per se, but I know there's probably other things we want to highlight. Is there anything else that you guys, Josh or Adriana, want to say before we wrap up? I, th- I think we hit on all of the major points, actually. I love the use of music. I kind of love that this is not his first Dog May film, that he was like, yes, I agree to this thing. I'll do it next time. I got this other movie to make first. And even the idea that the the title of the movie, the title of the movie is very small and his name is very big. And I think there's, it's from that shot, we establish, oh, that thing that that I agreed to, this movie is not that. Because that's like the opposite of what we're supposed to be doing. Right, because right one of the rules was the director's name could not be Yes. Shown. Yes. And here it's it's almost all that shown. It's this giant Lars von Trier breaking the waves. <laughs> um yeah, I I mean, it's a rough movie. I definitely, you know, uh I think we've covered it, but for in case you didn't get the vibe, massive trigger warnings here y'all it's it's a it's a movie with sexual violence in it um uh i am continually wrestling with the fact that as much as i am not sure how i feel about the, the treatment of the female subject in the film there is something to the idea that we don't see Bess die right uh, mm-hmm. it separates it from the Joan of Arc where, for the passion of Joan of Arc, where we literally see Joan burned to death. That's part of the movie or even, or debt, right. That like the, that for whatever reason, he's decided this final act is not something we need to, to witness after making us witness so much. He takes that away. I just think there's something there. And I, and I, and it's one of the things that I still think about and I don't know that I figured out per se. And you know, his recent attitude when it comes to talking about his movies is he doesn't want to. So I don't know that we're getting any new answers anytime (laughs) soon. Uh, Josh, anything else you want to say before we wrap up? I'll say it was no dumb and dumber. (laughs) <laughs> but it was pretty good. <laughs> All right. I'm sure we'll cover more Lars von Trier. I don't know that I'm stoked. I feel There's- like we always do. I don't know if I'll ever watch this movie again. I think like two to three times that I've seen it. That's good. I'm good. But I don't you know, know if I have to I, go back to this. Well, I'll, I'll be honest. I'll probably revisit Dancer in the Dark. I could see us doing that. I'd love to yeah, cover. I still his, love Dancer in the Dark. I'd Me love too. to cover his one comedy, The Boss of It All. He made one movie that's a comedy. It is. I haven't it, seen it, but I've heard it's bad. Uh, it's not great. But what I like about it is it takes the theory of of the British office. Hey, being uncomfortable is funny. And it pushes it to such an extreme that you start to think, is this comedy funny? This might not be funny. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyways, uh, but, you know, you know, I, I think 
I think there are movies of his. Like we talked briefly about the House that Jack built. I don't know that I want to do an episode on that. You know what I mean? So we'll see. Yeah. Again, we I've pointed to other directors earlier, like Guy Madden, like Vin Vendors, that we st- we haven't even covered Madden Wings fan. of Desire. Yeah, I'm a Guy Madden fan as well. I, I, will, know, straight, I, love I will straight up Midnight say at the Gimli Hospital. I will straight up say we should do Vin Vendors and Guy Madden. Long before we come back to Von Trier, we'll put them on. We'll put them 100% on the list that we agree. never look at, and uh, we'll add them. We'll add them into the rotation. <laughs> okay. Well, anyways, anyway. the point here is, hey, Adriana, thank you for coming on and talking for Jesus way too long about these two very intense <laughs> movies. Uh, I really appreciate you. Being Hopefully, here. Sharky will do some deep edits on this and cut a lot of uh, the fluff out. No, don't keep it <laughs> Thanks all, to Sharky. Sharky. Keep it all. No. <laughs> It's a lot. Well, thank it's you for lot. having me. Sorry, y'all. It was a pleasure. As you're always. the best, Adriana. Again, I I make I mince no words when I say that I consider you as one of like our main people, and my love for you is undying because of it. And thank Aww. you so much for just being a part of our crew, because that means a lot. You know, it's a saving grace for me at the very least, I love and you I'm really both. happy to be your friend. <laughs> All right, really this whole episode. Right. This is getting really sad. There are so many emotions in this episode. <laughs> After talking lot. about two truly harsh movies, we're just filled with sentimentality for each other. So we should wrap it up. But <laughs> suffice it to say, we love you, Adriana. We love you, the listener. We really hope that uh, you will tell your friends about the show, that you'll, if you haven't yet, you know, rate, review, subscribe, all that stuff. Uh, <laughs> please support our uh, sponsors, uh, we love them. Please check out the Patreon and really check out some of the other shows. I think Twitch of the Death Nerve has been killing it. Uh, I I really like uh, the stuff we've been doing on Cinema Smorgasbord, especially the latest episode of Jodowowski. Uh The fellows from from uh, Tomb of Ideas just had uh, the Mads on. Uh, I think that's really awesome. Um, Big ups to them for getting work to get interesting, famous people on. Uh, you know, we, we we got Lou Diamond Phillips, and that was it for us. We're not we're not doing any other work for guests. So, luckily, they're bringing the shine, and, and it's a really great episode. So, anyways, thanks to everybody. We should wrap up. We love you. Have a good night. Episode one hundred and forty four done and done. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Smoke bomb. Do you like spooky movies? Hair-raising tales. Insightful criticism. Judgmental hot takes. Then you're going to love Horror Business, the horror podcast on the Cinepunks Podcast Network dedicated to all things weird and spooky. My name is Leo Don. And I'm Justin Lore. And every episode, we're going to tear apart your favorite and not-so-favorite horror movies to get to the bottom of what makes these movies great or maybe not great. Whether it's The Beyond, Prince of Darkness, or Inseminoid, we dive in on a double feature every episode, and then we talk about it. Some of our insights are great, and sometimes we just complain. So if we have to suffer through it, so do you. Horror Business, available anywhere you find fine podcast products.